0: Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this batch video for the web novel, Out of Space, taken from the website Royal Road. I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter number 1. Journey A purple swirling storm suddenly grew out of the emptiness of space, unnatural lighting streaking within it as the darkish purple clouds rotated to form a whirlpool. A spaceship suddenly appeared in the eye of the storm, and the particles almost immediately dispersed. All departments status report. The XO of the UNS Singapore spoke to his comms while he unbuckled out of his station chair. The battle shutters of the viewport rolled up, exposing the dim light from the white dwarf in the Rummus system. Captain Blake, all departments report in green. Commander Kevin Ford looked up from his communications console after several minutes. So slow, sighed Richard Blake, captain of the United Nations of Man, heavy cruiser Singapore, turning training ship. Commander Ford's face turned slightly red and embarrassed as he coughed and said, Captain, with due respect, almost the whole crew just graduated from the Naval Academy. This is the first trip out so far. I know. I know. Blake sighed again. He used to be in command of a battlecruiser before losing the damned swarm, losing both his ship and his left leg. Commended for his actions and sacrifice, he was given command of the heavy cruiser UNS Singapore. The ship measured 210 meters with a beam of 33 meters and a sleek rectangular predator shape. More than a third of the length was occupied by seven bulbous engines and its warp drive a huge mass of sensor rays stabbed out of the bow. It was armed with two dual 155 millimeter rail cannons and a dorsal side of a single dual 150 millimeter on the ventral side, 16 dual 50 millimeter pulse laser point defense turrets, four on each side, and 10 light missile launchers on the port and starboard side, protected by 200 millimeter armor belt of electromagnetic repulsive shield. A crew of over 840 men and women manned the ship with berths, laboratories, and even a flight deck. A ship with this potential was considered to be state-of-the-art 80 years ago. As mankind ventured out into the unknown on colonized planets, they met the swarm nine years ago. All attempts to communicate failed as the swarm attacked with mindless abandon. Creatures out of nightmares dropped from the skies above Hempra Prime, while well, the unsuspecting colonists watched the beautiful meteor shower, which later turned into a death with claws in a core. A typical swarm warrior drone stands two meters tall and has two sets of legs and arm claws. A flat triangle carapace protects its brain case and teeth covered with which they were located in the chest area. It uses its four claws to rend, tear and pull its prey into its mouth. Typically low caliber weapons bounced off or were unable to penetrate its carapace and by the time the relief fleet arrived in Himper Prime, the survivors counted less than 15,000 out of 1.1 million colonists. Richard Blake was one of those 15,000 survivors. He was a polytechnic lecturer on mechanical engineering when his swarm fell on the other side of the planet. Soon, a planet-wide emergency was declared, and he was called up to the Reserve Commission as a part of the Planetary Defensive Force. Over several months, he has been part of the desperate action to delay the swarm as the government attempted to evacuate as many people into space as possible. Smalls the size of buildings constantly rained down from space over two weeks, and by then the land was forcibly terraformed into a mass of gooey substance. The swarm used the organic materials of living beings to spawn more creatures. Several months later, the fleet arrived, but everything was overtaking, except for the last stand of survivors. Emperor Prime was then bombed from orbit, turning the whole surface into glass in order to wipe out all traces of the swarm. After that, Blake enrolled in Fleet Naval Academy and fought in several distinguished actions before having his ship boarded with swarm spores and losing it along with his leg. As the war and the swarm continued, he felt left out and discarded in the safety behind the front lines. Captain, I recommend we push more drills so that the crew can gain more experience. Commander Ford handed a tablet with details of the drills to Captain Blake. He felt resentful to be an executive officer, or XO, of an outdated ship even as a trainee. He was a career officer who graduated with top grades at the academy. His first command was a destroyer that fared fairly well in combat. He was summoned to free command to meet the Chief of Staff, Admiral Spencer, thinking that he would get a promotion and a new ship to command. To his dismay, he was awarded this position as XO. Admiral Spencer patted his shoulder and said, You are still green and inexperienced in command. Learn from Captain Blake. Shortly, Ford departed after he was convinced that this was a requirement for promotion. Taking the tablet, Captain Blake scrawled through the list of drills that his EXO detailed out. All right, run the crew through the drills, but I want you to do it randomly at all hours. He handed back the tablet. Aye, Cap... Board replied halfway when a sudden alert sounded on the bridge. Captain, EXO, We are detecting gravitational anomalies ahead. Sensor Officer, Second Lieutenant, Ranny yelled excitedly. Two, no, five anomalies. Uh... 9,852 kilometers away, he added, Wow! Estimated mass 50,000 tons each. Captain Blake's grip on his armrest as he swallowed the retort and counted to 10 to calm himself. They are kids just fresh out of school, he glared at Commander Ford and signaled with his eyes. Catching the gesture, Ford sighed inwardly. To be fair, it was his job to train the bridge crew, He stepped over to the sensor officer, Randy, and leaned over his shoulder and said in a low voice, Lieutenant, please control yourself and report properly. You have learned it in the academy. Keep your excitement down. Yes, sir. Randy swallowed his excitement and turned back towards the captain. Sir, five anomalies detected, 67 degrees off starboard. Estimated mass, 50,000 tons each, sir. He nearly jumped up and saluted as he made his report. Forgetting that he was buckled into his crash seat. The rest of the bridge crew turned away as the Exo glared at everyone on the bridge. Relax, Captain Blake said. He knew that they were just green as he once was. He should not be so harsh on them. Do we know if there's a fleet operating in this area? Negative, Captain, replied the comms officer. According to our logs, the fleet schedule, we should be our only ship in the system. Merchant fleet or smugglers? Captain Blake continued asking. Captain, this system is designated as a training sector. There are no stations here, nor do we have any pirate or smuggler base here, this is target practice. Commander Ford answered. Captain, the contacts are moving. Sensors are picking up ion emissions. Computer, analyzing the data, reports 83.7% resemblance to the swarm parasite cruisers. Sensor Officer Randy reported. Hearing that, the bridge crew started to get anxious. Isn't this a safe zone? Someone muttered. Silence on the deck, Captain Blake yelled. These damn newbies. This is not a market. Do your duty. The crew instantly quieted down. Exo, set condition two. Aye, set condition two throughout the ship, echoed Ford. He pressed onto the wide screen intercom. All hands, this is your Exo speaking. Set condition two throughout the ship. This is not a drill, I repeat. This is not a drill. Following the announcement, the ship's alert system blared out. End of chapter Chapter number 2 Contact Second-in-charge Marine Corporal James 007 Bone was at a mess with the rest of the section two mates having dinner when XO announced the condition to alert. Due to his name being similar to the classic 2D movie character, Everyone had nicknamed him 007. He dropped his mesh tray and he and his section mates rushed out of the mess hall towards their berth where the equipment was stored. He pushed his way past several confused members as they stood in the way, wondering what's happening. Luckily for Marines, they had been conditioned to respond rapidly by constant training and drills. As he reached the Marines' berth, he found most of the platoon gearing up. Come on, load up. Platoon Staff Sergeant Pike yelled at everyone at the hatch, miraculously already suited up in full battle gear. Damn, did he sleep in that gear? James popped open his locker and started to suit up. First was the environmental wear which allowed him to survive in space or any biochemical environments, followed by his chest plate and armor munitions harness. Lastly, he donned his fully-enclosed HS3 smart helmet and checked his readouts in his heads-up display. All green. No leaks from the suit. Good. He grabbed the personal weapon, the M7A1 pulse rifle, that fired 65 millimeter case-telescoped ammunition and queued up the armory to collect his ammunition. Check your ammo. Make sure it's not armor-piercing. We don't want you jugheads to put a hole through the hull and suck us all into space. The sergeant spike roared out in his standard loud voice. He grabbed ten round magazines, ensured that they were not AP rounds, and started slotting the mags into his ammo pouches. Hey, Corp! Private First Class Mills called out. What's the scuttlebug? Did we get scum here or oh, no AP rounds? How are we going to do crap with these russy rounds? He held up a mag which contained 50 ceramic flangeable rounds. This type of ammunition was used to prevent shots accidentally penetrating the hull of the ship or sensitive locations in the reactor room. The bullet fractures into tiny pieces upon contact with metal, but against soft tissue, it'll penetrate and fragment inside. "'Do you want to put a bullet into the reactor and blow us all to space dust?' James retorted. "'Just shoot at the mouth's cavity.' Deep inside, James was worried too. The ceramic rounds just gave those scum, as the marines like to call the swarm, bruises. And the AP rounds would penetrate easier on less-armored parts of the swarm warrior drones. But in an old spaceship without internal-armored bulkheads, AP rounds were a disaster just waiting to happen. All right, Section 2, you pigs warm up. By the numbers now, he shouted. Throughout the ship, crew members mulled about in confusion and were yelled at by the supervisors to get into their action stations. As time went on, the department hence reported back to the bridge that their level of readiness and the XO Ford's face grew darker and darker. They have traveled so far from Sol to Remus, passing by two systems along the way for a total of two weeks. He deeply regretted being engrossed in paperwork instead of running more drills. He thought that nothing would happen behind the lines and he would serve his term on board before going over to command his own ship. He glanced at the captain as he thought. Captain Blake sat in his command chair without saying anything, but his fingers tapped on his armrest constantly. He was excited about a chance to fight. He spent over two months in the hospital another two months in rehab getting used to his new prosthetic leg and an additional month doing psych evaluation before returning to the fleet, followed by another two more months bound by the desk jockey before he was given command of his ship. The fleet was sending out all of their newest ships to the front line to hold back the swarm, while the mothballed ships like the UNS Singapore were taken out, given an upgrade of their drives and systems, and turned into auxiliary ships. At the time that he was thankful that he received command of the ship again, but soon the excitement and joy died down as he got stuck babysitting new graduates and the children of important ministers behind the lines. "'Captain, the five contacts will be within effective main gun range in 53 Mikes,' 2nd Lieutenant Randy reported. Despite his calm report, he was actually afraid inside. "'My dad said that this was a very safe deployment,' There would be nothing to do, no chance of the enemy. His father was a senior minister on Earth and pulled some strings allowing him to be posted on the UNS Singapore when the council passed a bull that all able men and women within the age of 18 to 35 had to serve in the military. EXO set the ship up to condition one and prepare for combat. Blake intoned. He looked up the tactical screen readout, displaying the contacts coarse and frowned. If only I had some ship-killer missiles, I could start engaging them now, he thought. The 155 millimeter rail railguns were simply electromagnetic cannons that just shot out projectiles that reached 290 kilometers per second. In a planetary atmosphere, railguns dominated the battlefield as long as there was a light of sight. But in space, moving objects were easier to be chucked and dodged, The longer the distance, the easier it was to calculate the impact point. Thus, the effective range of the railguns was shorter than lasers as lasers travel at the speed of light. This means that he has to engage within 5,000 kilometers, while the ship killer missiles can be fired at the target for over three times further. For this battle, he had to get practically nigh fighting range for ship combat. Suddenly, he caught himself. I should not prioritize combat. His crew was too inexperienced. He only had a few of his old hands from his previous ship on board. He looked at the tactical board and started to make calculations in his head. He turned the ship around now to the jump point out of the system. With the speed the enemy was closing in at, the ship would have to hold out for 15 minutes at least before they could escape. Too bad he did not have any missiles. He sighed again. If he did have the chances of survival, it would have been higher. Navigator, plot a course back to the jump point. Flank speed. Get us out of here, Blake commanded. Exo, ensure all stations are operational. Aye, Captain. The commander forward started to message all of the department heads, chasing them for readiness reports. Each station's readiness slowly started to flicker from red and yellow to green. After several minutes he finally reported all board showing green and gave a relieved sigh. "Exo, after this we need to drill more if we survive." Captain Blake gave a bleak smile to his Exo. "Yes, sir. That's for sure," replied Ford. He looked at the blinking red dots on the main tactical screen approaching slowly. 5 versus 1. How did they get here? This is a dead system other than the Yessian jump point there shouldn't be any other way in. "'Fleet has surveyed the system thoroughly.' "'I have no idea, either. "'I've been running up and down the sector for almost a year. "'This is the first time it has happened. "'Could the swarm have developed some kind of unknown drive "'that the fleet intelligence doesn't know about?' "'Captain Blake stood and stretched his back. "'He looked at the timer on the screen and said, "'There should be still over thirty minutes before they have range on us. "'How about some coffee and food?' "'Yes, sir. I shall order some up from the galley,' Forbes said." I think everyone should have something hot in their buddies too. Sir, course calculated. Time to and jump point will take 40 minutes. We will be within the enemy range for roughly 20 minutes before we jump, the navigator reported. Blake nodded, not bad, plus or minus a few minutes with his own calculations. Do it. Pilot, bring us about, follow the new route, boarded the XO. Aye, aye, changing course, blank speed, aye. Intoned the pilot. Hope this old lady can hold out for 15 to 20 minutes of combat, Blake thought to himself. End of chapter. Chapter number three. Engaged. Combat information set confirms contacts at five swarm parasites class biocruisers. Everyone looked up from their consoles as the report came in. Parasite class biocruisers were the swarm's mainstay space-borne weapons, born whole right out of a queen-class hive ship like some insect. They were made of living tissue combined with a super-hard carapace and had simple brain that controlled the bio-cannons and the organic ion propulsion at its back. Scientists have yet to discover how they are able to generate warp fields and travel faster than light. It looked like a giant space squid with two trading tentacle-like limbs, which the only purpose was to grapple objects. It has a mouth cavity under the ventral front that, when opened, stretched as long as 7 meters, allowing it to swallow small asteroids or even ships whole, crushing them into chunks before its stomach processed them down into resources to be used as fuel or organic materials. The sides of the parasite cruiser have several spikes like protrusions, which fire out spores or acid seeds. Each small seed contained over a dozen warrior drones in stasis, protected by a jelly-like sac that acted as a shock and a temperature absorbance, allowing the drones to survive re-entry into a planet or even slamming against a planet's surface or a ship. The jelly also acts as a sort of nutrients for the drones, allowing them to survive in space for over a week. Once the seeds land on the surface, the jelly sac will break open and the drones will awaken. The parasite cruisers will fire the small cannons and land their warriors on ships. Once the ship's crew has been subdued, they will ingest the ship and produce more small seeds. Swarm ships are known to feed on their own wounded kin to sustain and repair themselves. Enemy contacts designated Alpha Bravo, Charlie, Delta and Echo, coming within main gun weapons range, maximum effective range, in 10 mics. Weapons officer Yan Fei, "'licked his dry lips and stared intensively at his screen. "'Guns are primed and ready, sir.' "'The atmosphere in the whole bridge was tense except for Captain Blake. "'Richard Blake seemed like a changed person from the being indifferent to a tiger on the hunt. "'He sat in his chair with his back straight. "'His untidy grey hair was grown long since he had lost naval-regulated haircut. "'The weak, long, unshaven face twitched in anticipation of engagement.' and his brown eyes glowed with a sign of fire that was rarely appeared lately. Have all main guns target Alpha, fire two volleys when in range, he commanded. All departments ensure all non-essential personnel is knocked down. Commander Ford double-checked the crew members again. Marines are standing by key points to counter enemy boardings. Security crews are also securing their stations. Enemy contacts designated Bravo Bravo Charlie Darter and Echo, coming within range in 3, 2, 1. Fire! Blake snapped sharply. Since the launch of the UNS Singapore from Mitsubishi ST Orbital Slip 7 over Earth's high orbit, she had never fired a shot in anger. Now, more than 80 years later, she finally has. Six three point two kilogram nickel iron slugs were flung out at a velocity of roughly two hundred ninety kilometers per second towards the trajectory course of the target at alpha. Five seconds later another volley of six slugs was fired. Target bravo, two volleys fire and ready. Blake commanded. Aye, two volleys and target bravo, the weapons officer replied grimly. Everyone on the bridge stared at the screen as the timer on the first volley counted down the time to impact. At a distance of 5,000 kilometers, it took the volley 17 seconds to arrive at its target. Target Charlie, two volleys, Blake continued. No hits on Alpha, nothing on sensors. So Randy turned and looked at Captain Blake in horror. We are missing. Back to your station, XO Ford stormed. Keep your eyes on the screens, he glanced at the captain. ''Switch back to target alpha, two volleys again,'' Blake ordered. "Aye, target alpha, two volleys.'' Enemy closing in at 4,300 clicks. We're getting into the weapons range, sir. Sir Randy cried, ''Wait!'' ''Hit!'' ''Target Bravo's leaking atmosphere.'' The bridge erupted in cheers at the news. ''Quiet down! This is not over yet,'' Blake shouted. The crew quickly silenced down, but the morale was up. Targets are performing evasive actions, Charlie, no hits. Enemy is 3,900 clicks and closing. Fire at Alpha, two bodies again. Captain Blake barked. Stand by to evasive pattern Alpha and ready point defense lasers and missiles. They are going to fire this spore cannon soon. Multiple contacts detected. They fired the spore cannons. S.O. Randy tensed up as he looked at his screens. 60, 80, 92, no, 93 spores. He looked in horror. Nine seconds to impact. Go evasive Alpha now, fire countermeasure missiles, XO Ford yelled. 20 AIM-32H Space Sparrow multi-role missiles blasted out of the tubes and darted towards the incoming clusters of spores on the interception course. Each Space Sparrow had on board heat-seeking sensors to detect spore seats in the depths of space at a range of a 1,000 kilometers. Seconds later, twenty light balls appeared in the same time as a second volley of missiles were launched. The spores that survived the second wave of missiles continued on until they got burnt up by the point-defense lasers. None made it within three hundred meters of the ship. First wave of spores all destroyed. Target Alpha is crippled. It's leaking atmosphere and dropping out. Cheers greeted the news and Captain Blake gave a sharp smirk. Switch to Target Bravo. Continuous fire. As the Parasite Cruisers approached closer, the UNS Singapore's railgun accuracy increased, successfully hammering Target Bravo into bloody chunks of biomatter. The other three Parasite Cruisers dodged and returned fire with bodies of spore seeds. By luck and chance, the crew of the UNS Singapore managed to do enough damage to the three out of five Parasite Cruisers that fell back slightly but the waves of spore seeds never stopped coming. End of chapter Chapter number 4 Boarded The ship shook as several of the spore seeds slammed into the aft, and dozens of spores got vaporized by the plasma exhausts of the engine. The point defense gunners did their best to prevent the spores from hitting the ship, but still, some made it past the defensive laser fire. Damage report Captain Blake called out. "'Unknown at the moment, sir,' Ford replied as he checked each status on his screen. "'I think they hit the engine block. Get them on comms, warn engineering that they might have trouble, and alert the Marines,' Blake yelled. Chief Engineer Matt Peterson had ended the call from the bridge and turned around to face his team. "'We got some hitchhiker on our tail. Open up the arms locker and get armed. Inform the Marines.' The engineers and techs looked at each other with frightened faces. ''Chief, are we going to fight too?'' someone yelled. ''I didn't sign up for this.'' ''So you want to roll over and die? If those swarm things get in here, everyone is fish food for them. Now stop your whining, or I swear to God I'll space you guys instead and save the swarm the trouble of eating you.'' Chief Engineer Matt bellowed at his crew. ''Sir!'' Heard that you have some trouble, Marine Sergeant Collins of Section 4 entered Engineering Block 2 with his team of six Marines. Yes, those swarms seem to have boarded the engine block. We need to hold them off. If they destroy the engines, we ain't going nowhere. Chief Matt replied, I'll assign some guys to guide you around the engineering passages. He turned and yelled at the guys, You and you, yes, you, grab a weapon and join Sarge here. You are their guides. Go. "'Jenkins, Royce, and Dean, you three stay here and guard the main hatch. "'The rest on me. Move out.' "'Sergeant Collins led the rest of the section behind the two engineering crew members "'deeper into Engineering B. "'Marine officer in charge of the UNS Singapore, 2nd Lieutenant Frank Lee, "'was standing beside the bridge hatch. "'He flipped out his readout, glancing at it as he returned it back to his pouch. "'Staff, you fought these things before, right?' He asked Staff Pike softly. Yeah, fought them several times. On Emperor, same as the cap and two free boarding actions. Staff Pike replied without checking his gear. What's it like? Lieutenant Frank asked curiously. All he knew was from the videos and training simulations. He just got this posting directly after finishing officer cadet school. Command sent him here to learn how to command a platoon in the rear lines before planning to send him to the front. "'Bad. Really bad. Don't let them get near you. Their claws can rip through the marked 11 armor into shreds. Not to mention, other than armor-piercing rounds or large caliber weapons, nothing can pen the carapace. They are almost impossible to stop.' He dug out a magazine from his ammo pouch containing the ceramic rounds and shook it. "'These? It's not going to do much to them, but the trick is to shoot them when they get near you and open their mouths.' He loaded his rifle and slung it. Sir, you need to show the troops that you're confident. He reached out and stopped Frank from opening his pouch to take out his readout. That's the eleventh time you've took that out, sir. Keep calm and don't show your fear. Great. How am I supposed to do that, thought Frank. He caught himself reaching for his readout again and instead forced his hand back to grip his rifle instead. You think they boarded? Sure as hell, these things, they don't stop. They feed on you, and so they can create more of themselves. If we don't fight them, sooner or later, mankind is going to be extinct. He braced himself against the bulkhead with one hand as the ship groaned and shook from the maneuverings. They are coming. I can feel it. He looked at the rest of the troops milling outside the sector. We have to make sure that they don't get past us if Collins and his section fail. The narrow service corridors lined the pipes and cables only allowed Collins' section to advance in single file. Keep some distance, don't cluster the frick up. Collins warned the men as they followed the lead crewman where the ship and computers directed the intrusion. Private Leeds was following the techie in front of him. He looked as the radar pulled the techie to a stop. Wait, we're about 30 meters away from the target. The techie, dressed in a white environmental suit with a blue stripe indicating he was from engineering, looked frightened. He raised his weapon, a compact personal defense weapon chambered of five mm and nervously fingered the trigger. Hey, techie, what's your name?" Leeds asked as he signaled the men behind him to stop and hold. Lawrence Spaceman apprentice of Engineer. Arrgh. A scythe-like blade suddenly burst out of his chest, turning his white suit red as he turned to reply to Leeds. Crap! Contact! Private Leeds yelled as blood splattered onto his visor. He scrambled back and fell on his back as he watched Lawrence twitching in agony while the creature from nightmares appeared. The warrior drone lifted Lawrence towards the moor and bit down, severing the head and part of the shoulder of Lawrence and started to chew. Private Drake grew up in the sprawling metro hub of the outskirts of L.A. The war had started and with a new law stating that young men had to enlist, he decided to join the Marines. Travel to exotic planets, find aliens and kill them, the Marine recruiters said. Complete your term of enlistment and get a nice pension, they said. He grew up playing COD-15 and other shooters, fancying himself a pro shooter. Yet despite all the time in VR games, the reality was different as he went through four months of grueling training in Death Worlds and Airless Moons, and he really wanted to kill some aliens. And now that one of the aliens stood over his section buddy, snacking on the techie that brought them here, he flicked his safety off and fired at the warrior drone. Reddish puffs of smoke erupted over the head carapace of the drone as it lowered its head to protect itself. A couple shots blew what remained of the techie into a bloody mess. He watched as his rounds impacted uselessly on the armored torso of the alien and decided to pull back instead. He grabbed Leeds' harness and the grip bar behind his neck and with one hand while firing at the creature. Back! Get back! Leeds kicked his heels as fast as he could to scramble back as the drone discarded the gory remains and dropped into a crouch. He brought up his M7A1 and fired point blank at the drone while he felt someone grabbing his harness and pulling him up just in time as two sides slammed down where he was once a second ago, leaving twin gouges on the steel deck. Shoot the mouth, someone shouted in the rear. Get back, it's too narrow here. Brack, Drake cursed. Shoot the mouth, easier said than done. I got my hands full trying to pull leads back. I can't even aim straight. ''Frick!'' he swore. ''Leeds, you fricking owe me one! Shoot the scum's mouth!'' Drake dropped the rifle, which automatically retracted back to its harness. Using both his hands, he dragged Leeds all the way back. ''Die, motherfucker, die!'' Leeds screamed as he unloaded the whole magazine into the drone. Several shots punched through the razor-sharp teeth due to its firing angle and tore the soft tissue within the drone apart. Taking critical internal damage, the drone jerked and vomited up a mass of bloody gore and purplish ichor before collapsing. More incoming! Leeds yelled as he noticed shadowy shapes behind the corpse of the first drone. Frack! End of chapter Chapter number 5 Overwhelmed Captain Marine's reporting contact with the enemy at Engineering B-Deck 12 XO Ford reported. So far, one known casualty from engineering. Noted. Pilot, push the engines to 110% output. Get us out of the firing envelope, Captain Blake ordered. Drop some countermeasures. See if we can trick them for a minute or two. He turned to the weapons officer next and snapped. All guns and target Charlie. As the swarm ship slowed due to taking damage, the distance increased from 3,000 kilometers to 4,000 kilometers. But the swarm ships regrouped and continued to chase and harass the UNS Singapore. Captain Gun One can't target Charlie. It's in a blind spot, W.O. Yanfei said. He wiped his free-flowing sweat from his face. Do I reacquire another target? Yes, make it so. Next time don't ask me, just do it and inform me, Blake replied. He looked at the main tactical display. Seven minutes before the Etheon jump point. Prepare the warp drives. Captain, engineering reports warp drives are ready to go, but the engines can't take 110% output much longer. They're overheating badly. Ford looked up from his console. How long can the engines last? Blake asked. Four more minutes tops, Ford answered. Then the computer will auto-shut down the engines and begin the cool down procedure. Understood. Pilot, drop back to 10% power, but be ready to push it up to 125 on my command. Blake ordered. The whole bridge turned to look at their captain. Confusion can be seen on their faces. "'Back to your duties. The captain knows what he's doing,' Ford snapped. "'Captain, with all due respect, don't you think that it's too risky to go at one to five percent? The engines might blow and we'll be stranded here,' Ford whispered as he stood beside the captain. "'It will be fine. These things were built to last, not like the ships these days.' Blake looked how the counter changed from seven minutes to eleven minutes. We just need to give us an extra inert force to enter the jump point, then we can call for help. The fleet supply depot can rescue us even if our engines are burnt out. Deep in the bowels of Engineering B, Deck 12, continuous gunfire echoed across the deck. We need backup, Ray and Hawk are down, Sergeant Collins yelled into the command network comms. We can't hold them back, we're putting back to Deck 10. He paused to fire at his rushing horde, watching his shots knock off the creature down. It shook itself up and started rushing forward again. Mac! We can't hold them here! Get them back to deck 10, he instructed the leads and Drake before throwing a stun grenade at the mass of claws and chitin. The concussive frost from the stun grenade disoriented the drones long enough for the three of them to retreat back. As they fell back, they sealed the locked hatches and slowed the swarm down. Panting, "'Sergeant Collins led Private Leeds and Private Drake "'to link up with the rest of Section 4. "'Sergeant Collins, what's going on?' asked Corporal Jenkins. "'With him, there was Lance Corporal Royce, Private Dean, "'and four other white-suited techies, "'armed with five-millimeter PDWs. "'Everyone was looking at Sergeant Collins with anticipation, "'other than Leeds and Drake, "'who leaned against the bulkhead panting. Form a firing line here, damn things are coming!' Sergeant Collins said. These pea shooters at yours don't do much damage. Those scum are damn hard to kill. He pointed to the techies' weapons. Go find something to act as barricades. We'll haul them off here. The techies looked at each other and nodded. We got some heavy machinery movers. Those can block the passageway. Great. Get them on and tell Chief Matt to evacuate non-essential personnel. Sergeant Collins instructed. Yes, Sarge. With that, the techies ran off down the hatchway. Not long after, a couple of forklifts driven by the techies arrived and were directed by Sergeant Collins to park in alternating zones to create an S-shaped funnel. The techs locked the wheels and jammed the fork arms against the deck to prevent the vehicles from getting knocked away easily. Screeching sounds of metal and unearthly cries echoed down the hatchway. Get ready, they're coming! Remember to aim for their mouths or their weaker joints. These wussy rounds aren't going to penetrate for Frick. Collins yelled, You guys, clear the area. Get back to engineering. You guys, take care. The techs left the area and returned to the engine room. S4, S4, come in. This is Eagle, over. Eagle, this is S4 Actual, currently in combat with scums. Two men down, requesting immediate support. Over. Sergeant Collins commanded back. "'S-4, Eagle, Roger, sending S-3 to your location. by. Over.' "'S-4, copy that. Out.' Sergeant Collins turned and said to the rest, "'Section 3 is coming to reinforce us, so we're going to have to hold here till they come.' Hurrah the Marines in Section 4 yelled back. "'Kill them all!' The warrior drones rendered and tore the hatches that stood between them and their prey. Their senses allowed them to locate the tasty meat through a mix of psionic waves, smell, and taste. They saw things by sensing their life aura and kind of energy to the swarm. They could even see the engines and the reactor fuel by helium-free. Live prey shows up as a yellowish-white pulsing mass, while pure energy shows up as a red-white mass. The drones communicated telepathically and divided into two groups to harvest those energies. The first group continued to systematically rip open the sealed hatches to reach the light prey, while the second group tore right through the decks into the mass of angry red aura, only which the swarm could sense. Here they come, the relieved warrior drone slammed against the forklift, causing it to tilt and crash into the deck on its side. Fire, Sergeant Collins commanded. Five M7A1s blazed in a hail of ceramic bullets that forced the leading drone backwards. It struggled to rise, but it must have suffered from some internal injury in its body. The Marines then switched to the next target. Behind, but as one drone went down, three more appeared to take its place. There are too many of them. Frickers won't die, Private Dean shouted as he reloaded the third magazine. He suddenly found himself flying in the air towards an unrushing swarm. What? He looked down at his chest to find a claw latched to his armor, flipping him upside down. ''No!'' Private Dean screamed as he disappeared into the mass of thrashing claws and teeth. ''Prick, Dean is gone!'' Lance Corporal Royce screamed. He crouched behind a stack of engine maintenance parts, trying to his best shot to shoot out the joints of mouths. But it was hard to hit the creatures utilizing their heads' carapace as a form of shield to advance. He fired at the exposed legs, sending some of the drones crashing down, and sent a burst into the exposed mouths as they struggled to crawl up. Sarge, we can't hold. Hold, god damn it. Section three is almost here. Sergeant Collins reloaded his rifle and fired at a warrior drone which climbed on top of the toppled forklift. A searing pain tore through his left side as another warrior drone appeared and slashed at him. Frack this, use Franks, he yelled as he stepped back. Rag out! Two fragmentation grenades were thrown by Private Leeds and Corporal Jenkins. Both of them aimed them behind the upturned forklift to prevent fratricide. The M144AP fragmentation grenades packed 70 tungsten ball bearings surrounded by 24 grams of charge of C9 explosives. The resulting explosion of the explosives turned the tungsten balls into bits of plasma that would burn through 4mm stick armoured steel. The dual explosion left Sergeant Collins off his feet as the shock wave carried him back a couple meters, dumping him painfully against the bulkhead. Dozens of molten holes could be seen in the forklift's hard plastic structure that protected the rest of the Marines. Alarms blared and warning the several breaches in the hull screamed. The swarm took the brunt of the explosions in their midst, shredding them to bits and pieces. As the auto fire suppression kicked in, a dark shape emerged through the foam. Lance Corporal Royce dropped face down as he was cut in half by the warrior drone's scythes. The rest of the section, which was still recovering from the shock after the blast, was cut down one by one helplessly. Private Leeds lost his left arm as he attempted to fire his rifle before losing his head. Private Drake managed to skittle across the deck as he dodged multiple slashing limbs of the warrior drone. Just as he ran out of space to dodge, with the warrior drone looming over him, a sudden gunfire forced the warrior drone to retreat until it collapsed from the hail of bullets from the timely arrival of Section 3. Medic! End of chapter. Chapter Number 6. The Jump The ship shuddered and shook violently, its hull groaning and moaning even louder. What was that? XO Ford scanned his console. Damn, Maria Jughegs are just blowing up the ship. They just detonated two grenades in engineering. Captain Blake looked at the main tactical screen and listened to the marine comms. Need backup? Royce is down. Medic! He closed his eyes, remembering his first fight with the swarm in Hempera Prime. He and other troops on the 6th PDF had been deployed to the outskirts of the city. He remembered the sky being a beautiful purplish pink with the white clouds in contrast to the horizon marred with plumes of black smoke. He watched dark lines appearing in the wheat fields three kilometers away using his binoculars, until there were too many to count. The swarm were approaching their defensive location rapidly in a massive wave of black chitin. Artillery fired and balls of fire spurted out amongst the dark lines. Yet the swarm pushed on relentlessly. Soon the order of open fire came, and he amongst a thousand others fired their weapons in mass. Captain, the exo called out, are you all right, sir? Yes, just remembering some things. Blake looked at the timer, four more minutes before entering the Ithian jump point. So far their mains have been keeping the swarm parasite cruiser at bay, but they learned that they were staying mostly at blind spot of main gun one, effectively cutting down a third of the firepower. Combined with the emissions from their own engines, sensors have not been very effective, meaning their point defense was less effective when the more spores were landing on the ship before more frequently. From his experience and research released to the military by the fleet intelligence, the swarm was attracted to the sources of energy like fission reactors and thrust engines. The scientists are unable to determine how they see that they don't have physical eyes. It was widely speculated that they sensed and communicated using some telepathic ways. Let the Marines do what they need to stop the swarm, Captain Blake said. If the swarm don't kill us first... The ship groaned again and the pilot put some ship through some other bout of evasive maneuvers. As the timer dropped to two minutes, Captain Blake gripped his armrest and ordered, Warp engines on standby, pilot pushed the engines to one to five percent power. Once, we were in warp space, cut the engines immediately. The seven Mitsubishi STRX 78 aerospace engines created a bigger plume of superheated plasma, pushing the 35,000 tons of armored steel faster towards the Etienne jump point. The four remaining swarm parasite cruisers, seemingly sensing that their prey was trying to escape, also put on speed and swam closer to the United Nations of Man heavy cruiser. Staff, what do we do now? Section 4 has suffered over 80% casualties. Second, Lieutenant Frank urgently asks Staff Sergeant Pike, put the survivors with Section 3. Sir, I advise you let the survivors recover a bit first, put them here to hold the bridge, push Section 2 to help Engineering B, and move Section 1 to cover Engineering A. Sergeant Pike said while tapping a map on his readout, and the rest of the M7s A1s out to the crew security details to help hold engineering. Other than our M7s, nothing is effective enough against the scums. Can we load armor-piercing rounds, or get our heavy guns? Second Lieutenant Frank asked worriedly. We are taking unnecessary losses. Unless you want a chance of blowing up half the ship to space? No, sir. Sergeant Pike sighed. Let's move the section out better to bring more ammo along. All right, staff, we do it your way. Second, Lieutenant Frank said he activated his comms and instructed Section 2 to advance to Section 3's location and ordered the survivors of Section 4 to take over the guard post at the bridge. Yes, sir, Staff Sergeant Pike turned to the rest of the section, manning the guard post outside of the bridge hatch and yelled, All right, back it up, we're moving to Engineering A. Lambert and Gath, you two stay here and wait for relief from Section 4. After that head to the Armory and bring one time six point five millimeter C type ammunition case to Engineering A. Do you apes understand? Yes, Staff. One time six point five millimeter C type ammunition case, I. Private Lambert and Private Gath Corrist. Sergeant Ramon, where are you? Staff Sergeant Pike commanded over the net. Yes, sir, Staff? Sergeant Ramon, IC of Section two, replied after a while. What are you doing? Get your section of Engineering B. I want you to unlock the armory and issue out the remaining MEM-7s to security details and also wait for Private Lambert and Private Gath to draw ammunition. Then get your rear to the your section. You clear? Staff Sergeant Pike spoke into the comms. Of course, sir. My pleasure, Staff. Sergeant Raymond replied, happy to know that he could get out of harm's way. Ever since he had been posted aboard the UNS Singapore as an armorer, as there was no senior NCO for Section 2, he was assigned to be the IC and the armorer. Most of the men don't like him, as he was not an ideal example of a fighting marine. With a slight pop-belly and a balding head, he struggled to squeeze into his suit, harness, and armor. He normally skipped the drills and exercises that the rest of the men went through, claiming he needed to inspect his armory leaving the running of his section to these 2IC Corporal James. When the sirens went off, he was totally terrified. He hid in his armory using as many excuses as he could to avoid being deployed with all the men till Staff Pike kicked his rear out of his hiding spot. While he may have been a coward, he was posted on the US in Singapore to keep out of trouble. His skill as an armorer were top-notch, He was able to modify or even build guns from scraps and gun parts. Sergeant Ramon puffed out his chest, turned and said in a self-important manner, Corporal James, you're in charge now. Staff wants Section 2 to link up with Section 3, and I'm supposed to head to the armory. He grinned happily. New orders! Ah, roger that, Sarge. Corporal James raised an eyebrow as he watched Sergeant Raman scuttle away like some huge cockroach. Sighing, he turned and spoke to the rest of his section who were watching Sergeant Ramon leave. ''Okay, new orders. Staff wants us to link up with Section 3. Let's go.'' ''Bad Raman is a joke, man,'' Private Mull said in a low voice to Private Bartley. ''He always tries to hide in some dark corner, away from all the fun.'' <laughs> Private Bartley, standing over two meters tall, replied softly. ''You shouldn't make fun of the Sarge. He's a good man inside.'' "'Come on, he was posted here due to him losing his marbles in the front lines. "'He's lucky they didn't shoot him for cowardice.' "'Private Mills scorned. "'Hey, Corp, why are we joining Section 3?' "'Corporal James looked up from the readout and saw Private Mills together with Private Bartley walking next to him. "'Private Bartley looked like a huge lost bear without his usual heavy weapon, "'and the M7A1 in his hands looked like a toy.' Heard that Section 4 got it bad, that's why. Ah, crap. That bad? Private Mills gulped. He wondered if he made the right choice in joining the Marines instead of Fleet or any other of the branches. Am I going to die here as an old metal tube, he thought. All hands prepare to enter warp space in two minutes. I repeat, entering warp space in T-2 minutes. The ship-wide PA system announced. End... Of chapter. Chapter number seven. Disaster. Entering the final limit on Ramos's gravity well. Warp engines are fully charged. Calls to Ethian jump points plotted in. Captain, ball system screen ready to warp. The pilot announced. Do it. Along the sides of the hull, the purplish blue streaks of energy crackled and sparked. Everyone on board felt the ship vibrate and hum all the way deep into their bones. The cosmic storm started forming around a 100 meters away from the bow of the UNS Singapore. Purple lightning flashes across and reaches out in the arcs, seemingly pulling the ship into the depths of the storm. Soon, the ship is covered by a cosmic storm and vanishes away. Blake held down a wave of nausea threatening to vomit out. He gulps down a mouthful of coffee from his fluid pack and asks, "'How long to Ethian?' He noticed some unfortunate soul vomiting inside their helmets. "'Sir, about nine hours before we exit warp space.' Blake nodded and turned to Ford. "'Exo, give me more men to help the Marines. Once we can get the swarm on board contained, then we can start repairs.' "'And count her dead,' he thought to himself.' Section three, I see Sergeant Kai's young peered out of the wreckage forklift. Dozens of swarm warriors' drones' corpses' lay scattered around the narrow deck. Some other bodies are still twitching and moving. He looks back at the medic trying to stop the bleeding on Sergeant Columns. ''Doc,'' he called out. ''How does it look?'' ''Will he be okay?'' he asked. ''His armor absorbed most of the blow. No major organs hit. We'll need some surgery. He should be all right.'' He's just knocked out from the shockwave. The medic hooked a pack of nano-blood onto Collins' harness and then inserted the catheter into his suit's medical port. He checked his medical readouts and gestures to the two medical assistants. All right, send to sickbay, he's stable now. Sergeant Kai Ziyang cocked his head as he thought he heard something. Guys, is that gunfire? he asked. The rest of the section also started to listen intently. Yeah, sounds like the pop guns the crew uses, someone said. Sounds like below us. Crap, Sergeant Kai's young, cursed. He activated his comms. All units on alert, we have an unknown contact other than Deck 12. Repeat, unknown amount of contacts on other than Deck 12. Be on the lookout. Hey, Sergeant KX, Corporal James leading the section arrived. More trouble, he nodded to the other members of Section 3. Where do you want us? Good. Just in time. I want you to head down one level, check it out. Hearing shots fired. Roger that, Collins turned and said, All right, let's go scum hunting. The section two entered the lower decks after turning around and split away. They saw that turned their stomachs. Claw marks scarred the walls and decks while blood, pieces of human parts and bullet casings littered the walkway. Several of the lights were damaged in the fight, leaving parts of the walkway in the dark and flickering. ''The Frick! This is like those horror 2D movies we watched,'' Private Mills muttered. ''Where did those scum went?'' ''Over here, Private Ed stood over the ripped-up section of the deck plates. A section of the floor had a huge hole torn up, large enough for the Swarm Warrior drone to enter. ''I think they went down here.'' Corporal James shone his tactical lights down into the hull, revealing an engineering service duct which appears to lead towards the port side of the ship. He debated should he send his people down, when screams and gunfire echoed from the sideways. Okay, Ed, David, Sean, and Hung, you four down the rabbit hole and check it out. The rest on me. He hefts his weapon up and heads towards the direction of the screams and gunfire. When the spore seed slam into the hull of the ship, the outer layer consists of a highly corrosive agent that is able to melt through several inches of thick armor once the breach is formed the spore seed will cover the hole it made and naturally seal it and start to disgorge its cargo of warrior drones following the signs of battle the sounds of fighting ahead corporal james and the rest manage to approach from the rear of the swarm as the back of the carapace of the swarm warrior drones is thinner compared to the front side the 6.5mm rounds might not penetrate the hard carapace, but still managed to cause enough broken bones and inner trauma to the warrior drones attacking the group of crew members ahead. Thank the stars you marines are here, the ashen-faced crew called out. We nearly died. Is this all? Are there any more of them around here? Corporal Jaynes asked the survivors. I'm not sure. We were mostly running and shooting, didn't have a chance to do anything else. All right, stay here and hole up here. Corporal James turns and jerks his head back to where they came from, and the rest of the section form up behind him. Pocking hell, this is like a death trap. but Sean cussed as he could only advance in a half-crouched manner in a tight service tunnel. Yep, they went by this way. He pointed to the side of the tunnel where scratches made by claws could be seen and reported their progress to Corporal James. Okay, we are told to keep going, he said the rest behind him before continuing. After walking less than 20 meters, a corner appears, where the sound of metal tearing could be heard. Private Sean raises up a fist and then the rest behind him stop as to stay alert. He peeks around the corner to find several meters away, four swarm warrior drones were ripping through one bulkhead and tearing the pipes and cables out. Corporal James, we spotted the scums, but they're doing something strange. Private Sean whispered into his comms. Do we engage? What are they doing? Corporal James asked, curious about the actions of the swarm. Um, digging into the walls? Private Sean replied. All four of them. They are tearing up the place pretty bad. Wait, what? Corporal James stopped and rushed back towards the group of crewmen they just saved. The rest followed, confusion, wondering what was going on. Hey! Do you know what's in the service tunnels? He yelled as he approached the crewman. Which service tunnels? They asked back. What service tunnels are you in? Corporal James held his palm to indicate to the crewman to wait. He says mte 13 c after a short pause. That's the main conduit from the reactor to the engines and warp drives. The crewman replied after double-checking his tablet. What happens if the conduit is damaged? Corporal James asked urgently. Um... Loss of power to the warp drives and engine until backup kicks in, or power is rerouted. If the ship is underway in warp space and the warp drives require a high amount of power to keep running, an energy leakage will vaporize everything within 50 meters or more. The white-suited man said, Get out of there! Corporal James shouted into his comms as hearing what was being told. Next, he switched off his command net and reported everything that was going on. Get out of there! The swarm is tearing the power conduits! Horrified, the crewmen turned and ran towards the centre of the ship, followed by Corporal James and the rest. Hearing the shout to get out, Private Sean turned and shoved David, who was at his back. Go, 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 go! Retreat! Less than a second, but a burst of bluish white flame erupted out between the warrior drones, instantly vaporising them before turning Sean and the rest into ashes. The blast expanded, melting decks and turning hull plates to slag, before tearing the ship in half and sent the halves spinning into warp space. End of chapter. Chapter 8. Lost. A sudden rattle on the decks first indicated that something was wrong. Captain Blake sat on his command chair reading the reports flooding in from engineering and felt the shaking of the ship. He looks up in surprise as did the rest of the bridge crew. The shaking of the ship grew stronger and harder like an earthquake, followed by the massive sound of groaning metal. What the hell is that? he asked. Before anyone could respond to his question, alarms blazed madly and the whole world went white. The rip and the power conduits blew a massive hole in the port side of the ship close to the engine's. As a result, the force of the explosion caused the massive structural stress and damage to the ship, snapping the ship in half like a breaking chopsticks. The leftover energy spun the forward half of the ship like a spinning top. As decompression threatened the ship's crew, the computer activated emergency decompression protocols and one by one airlocks slammed shut, protecting the remaining crew members from instant decompression. Yet, this did not save everyone, for as the inertia energy causing the ship to spin, forcing a crushing 14 Gs on everyone. The unsecured crew members and objects were slammed into bulkheads, causing broken bones and instant concussions. Crew members fainted from the high gravity or died to heart attacks, broken necks or head concussions. Even with everyone wearing space environmental suits, the computer detected the high-gravity spin and no human responses, attempting to right the ship using maneuvering thrusters. It was successful and managed to stop the spin of the ship. By then, the crew of the Uranus Singapore had become incapacitated. The ship continued in on warp space, draining power from the charged capacitors and the remaining reactor. The spin from the explosion knocked out most of the course of the original plotted route to Ethian system and travelled on to an unknown region of space. Warp travel is based on knowing where the endpoint is. If not, the ship will be lost travelling to an unknown part of the galaxy. In the beginning, many explorers disappeared into the void of warp space, never to be seen again. Hence, at each stable jump point, a warp signal buoy guides the ships to their destinations. Blake felt someone shaking him. He slowly woke up from an endless shaking and "'Captain! Captain!' "'Enough! Stop yelling in my ear. It's giving me a headache,' he grumbled. He tried to raise his head, only to feel like it weighed ten times more. He blinked his eyes and realized that it wasn't his vision that was blurry. His head visor was chipped with spiderweb cracks. He tugged his helmet off with the assistance of someone that he couldn't really see clearly. "'Captain!' Are you all right? Comes Officer Clara peered at Captain Blake. She has some medical knowledge and is checking Captain Blake if he has any concussion. What happened? Blake rubbed his face, coughing from the fumes and burned plastic and found his glove stunted with blood. He looked around the bridge, finding several of the crew stumped over in their seats. I'm not too sure, sir. I just woke up not too long ago. She checked his irises and declares, you gotta mind a bump, sir. Stay on your seat. I'll check on the others. And she moves again to check another person. Blake fumbles with his console, bringing up the ship's computer logs. His face turns as he reads through the logs. A nuclear explosion on board the ship? Oh. He unbuckles the crash harness and deployed when the explosion happened and stumbles to the pilot controls. He checked the pilot's suit readout, finding him without any major issues, and unbuckled him from his seat and unceremoniously dumped him on the floor. Blake pulls up the warp, navigation systems, and pilot's console, and cursed. The ship is out of course. Damn it! 27 hours in warp! I need to shut it down! Blake quickly keys in the command to drop the ship back to normal space. Red lines of warnings alerts appear immediately on the pilot console and he tries to stop the warp drive. Warp drive unconnected What? How can the warp drive be unconnected? He made his way back through the command console in search of the damage report. What? He looked at the ship's wireframe diagram showing all systems on board. The reactor B was grayed out, so with the warp drives and engines. In fact, The entire rear half of the wireframe diagram was grayed out. Did the explosion blow up half the ship? All those men gone? What the hell really happened? He tapped a few keys, trying to access the systems, but there was no response. Blake stumbled back to the pilot seat and typed in some commands, and the console displayed what he was looking for. The warp engines were down, but the warp emitters were still generating a warp bubble that keeps the ship in warp space. Without a warp bubble, the ship cannot enter warp space. Brake checked the power systems and found that the warp emitters are still drawing power from reactor A. He quickly shut down the power to the emitters. Without the warp engines to slow the control exit of the warp space, the ship dropped out of warp space back to normal space like a bullet hitting the water's surface. Blake flew forward and over the pilot's console to slam against the main tactical display, knocking his breath out and causing more spiderweb cracks to appear. Several yells and screams of pain and surprise came from the other side of the console, where comms officer Clara was trying to treat the wounded bridge crew. The viewport changed to a purplish-gray scenery to normal specks of stars. The dribble of blood trickled down Blake's forehead as he climbs his way back to the pilot console. He slumps into the pilot chair, trying to get his head to stop spinning, and looks over at Clara. Seeing that she is moving, he turns back to the console, with one hand pressing in his head wound, and uses one hand to search for their location. Error. No database for current system. No, Blake groaned. He looks out in the viewport, seeing the tiny specks of stars in the distance. We're lost, he sighed. End of chapter chapter number nine crash landing standing in front of the viewports captain blake turned to his exo ford approaches how bad is it he asks and with his left arm in his thing ford held the tablet in his right hand and replied not good lost all main propulsion systems life support systems warp drives reactor b supplies in cargo bay b and 378 crew members The remaining 478 men and women are all suffering from some degree of injuries. He sighed and said, We are basically a drifting hunk in derelict in space. The computer still can't pinpoint our location, Blake asked. No, the computer couldn't match any of the astro charts that we have, but basic survey sensors class the system as having a G5 star and four planetary bodies, Ford replied. Blake reaches out for the tablet and Vaughan hands it over before continuing. There are no traces of radio waves or any kind of electronical signals. We are in uncharted space. How is life support doing? Blake continues to ask. Overloaded. With the main life support gone, the secondaries are doing all they can to scrub the CO2 out of the systems. Maintenance gives us 40 hours max before total failure, Ford said. So no chance of rescue as we don't even know where we are. Blake scratched the bandage covered on his forehead. Less than 40 hours of air. Looks like we have to find an ice asteroid or a moon to mine some water to convert. Captain, I think we can try surveying the planets. With the G5 sun, there is a high chance that we might be able to be a planet suitable for us to land on. Ford reaches over and taps a few commands in the tablet. The computer has simulated which planets have the highest chance of being a life-bearing. But we do not have a way to land on the surface. There are only two shuttles aboard, and it is not used for atmospheric travel, Blake said, unless we land the ship down. Yes, sir. That is what I am proposing. The only way for us to survive is to land with what remains of the UNS Singapore. Ford nods. All right, prepare a plan for me to review and also arrange for an old department head meeting in two hours. Blake turns back to watching the stars. Two hours later, the captain's boardroom, the seats are getting filled up as the head of various departments arrived. Everyone has some kind of injury and looks tired as they took their seats. Blake stood up as the last attendant entered the room. All right, now that everyone is here, we shall start. First thing I want to say to clear everyone's mind is that the ship is crippled and there is no chance of rescue at all. He looks around the conference table. The people at the conference table consisted of the XO Ford, Chief Engineer, Lieutenant Commander Matt, Marine C.O., 2nd Lieutenant Frank, and Marine Senior NCO, Staff Sergeant Pike, Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Sharon, and from the Ship Operations and Maintenance, Lieutenant Grayson. Missing from the command group was Master Chief Cobbs and Weapons Officer Yun Fei, who lost their lives. We will start by updating each other on what each apartment's situation is and what resources we have left and ideas to solve them. Blake nodded towards Lieutenant Commander Matt. Let's start with engineering. As you all know, we lost the engines, warp drives, and also a reactor. We are down to one reactor running the whole ship now. As for fuel, the forward fuel bunkers are at 46% capacity enough to keep the ship running for three months since no fuel is needed for the engines, Chief Matt reported, so no issues with power for now. He gestures to Lieutenant Frank to report next. The Marines are down to a total of 28 men to 12 effective. We lost almost 60% of the platoon to the swarm and the explosions, Lieutenant Frank spoke. Medical is overwhelmed. I got two hundred with severe wounds and another hundred or so with minor injuries, and eight in critical condition. I do not have enough beds to look after them all, Dr. Sharon said. I need more help with the injured. Most of them are just laying in the hallways. I can clear a space in the forward hangar bay. It's basically almost empty, Ops Officer Grayson said. We can set up a triage station there. Good, that will help. Dr. Sharon replied, I also need some manpower. Blake nodded and said, Okay, ops, please prioritize it. Next. Damage control parties are working in three ships to prevent decompression on deck 17, 19, and 23. The explosion has weakened the ship's structure, but it shouldn't be a problem. Also, we are trying to get the machine shop to fabricate some air scrubbers, which will help with the increased CO2 in the air. Grayson looked up from his tablet. If we use the emergency O2 supplies from the lifeboats, it'll give us another 12 to 14 hours of air. Hearing that, no one spoke until Ford feared his throat. I have a proposal that might help in the regards to that. With that, he activated the holographic display in the middle of the conference table. Scans show that the system has a total of four planets circling around a G5 star. The computer has calculated that this planet, he indicated planet starts pulsing, is within the Goldilocks zone, which can allow life to be sustained. One hour ago, a probe was sent to determine if it was habitable, has returned and sent the reports. Based on the report, it is an exoplanet with a can't support Terran life forms. The holographic image on the planet expands out, showing blue seas and green continents. The computer also calculates with our current amount of thruster fuel. We can achieve orbit in two weeks' time. Two weeks? We do not even have three days of air. Yes, that's where Dr. Sharon's expertise comes in, Ford continued. Me? Dr. Sharon looked up in surprise. Yes, we can use the cryo-injectors, which is used to keep a heavily wounded in suspended animation to slow down the crew's metabolism rate and also power down all non-essential systems, especially the general heaters. Refreeze the crew, and once in orbit, the computer will thaw the men out, and we can land on the planet. It might work, but I need to manage the dosage properly. Also, I need to fabricate more cryo shots. There is only so much in stock. Dr. Sharon frowns as she mentally did some calculations. Yes, I should have enough supplies. ''Question, sir?'' Grayson raised his hand. ''Even if the cry shots work, we wake up all happy at the planet. How are we going to land?'' ''BSET-200 shuttles we have are space haulers. They can't fly in the atmosphere. Even if we use the lifeboats to drop them into the planet, we can't squeeze all the crew and critical supplies,'' Grayson pointed out. Captain Blake rose from his seat and said, Lady and gentleman, who said anything about landing on the planet in the first place? He smiled and said, We're gonna crash land this baby down. End of chapter Chapter Number ten Planet Fall A shipwide announcement informed the crew of the current situation, while the head of departments assigns and prioritizes tasks to their people. The next several hours on board the UNS Singapore was like a kicked down Medical personnel and Marines worked to stabilize the wounded, while other crew members stripped preserved O2 tanks from the lifeboats and even the water converter to convert O2 out. The mechanics also managed to fabricate out the CO2 scrubbers, which lowers the CO2 content in the air. As everything was being prepared, Dr. Sharon used the medbay, managed to produce enough cry shots for each crew member, using the stark medical biomaterials on board. The medical computer analyzed the requirements and fine-tuned the medicine to be used. Sir, Ford appeared next to Blake, here are the plans I have worked out with Ops. Blake took a tablet and quickly glanced through. We will load the more severely wounded on the lifeboats while the rest must stay in the crash sheets. Then, on the designated time, all crew members are to inject themselves with the cry shot while the computer shuts down all non-essential systems and vent all heat out of the ship. All thrusters will also activate at the same time, pushing us towards Blake's World. Blake's World? Captain Blake raised an eyebrow. Yes, sir. The rest of the crew is calling that planet Blake's World so kind of stuck. XO Ford looked away. All preparations should be ready in one hour, but even with everyone in cryosleep, including the oxygen stalls from the lifeboats, we barely have enough for two weeks of travel to allow us to land on the planet's surface. Are you not scared? Blake suddenly asked. We might not make it. Sir? Ford was confused. He was, of course, scared. This was supposed to be a simple assignment before he gets promoted a stepping stone for his climb up to Fleet HQ. How could he not be? He didn't want to lose face or give up, and he should put up a brave front. After all, he still had his pride as an officer. Of course, yet there is nothing to do about it. I do want to survive and return to Earth, and preferably get back to a desk job at a Fleet HQ, he responds. (laughs) You're still thinking of climbing up to the staff ranks? Blake joked. I'm terrified yet excited at the same time. He tapped his artificial leg. They took this from me and my friends and my family too. I wanted revenge so much that I jumped at any opportunity to fight them, even if it wasn't on the front lines. I can still do some good training new crews. Blake looked it forward in the eye. So even if we are lost out here, we shouldn't give up. I almost did before, even if we are afraid, there are still over 400 people counting on us. So, we have to stay strong for them. Ford was surprised as he looked at Blake. Ever since he joined as XO, he found Blake was mostly indifferent to what the crew does. Blake usually agrees to anything Ford proposed, and generally kept himself out of running of the ship other than attending meetings or major issues. Ford realized that maybe this was what drove Blake. The combat and the life and death situations. We will not orbit the planet but instead crash into it, Blake declared. What? Ford was shocked. But can we survive re-entry? The city-class cruisers were designed to be atmospheric capable. It'll be able to enter the atmosphere and land somewhere safe. I'll set the computer to wake me up and I will pilot it to ship down, Blake said. Even if we don't survive re-entry... It will be painless. The crew won't even feel it. But that's too dangerous. Half the ship is gone. Shouldn't we follow my team's plan? Ford argued. By fabricating drop pods for materials and supplies, converting the haulers to atmospheric travel, and using lifeboats to land. Blake shook his head. Not enough time for that. It's a gamble. One against the odds, sir. Ford stood his ground. He pointed at the viewport. There is no telling if the ship will break up on re-entry. I've already had the Chief Matt and Ops Grayson check the ship's integrity. The old lady won't fail us. Blake plats the smooth bulkhead. He returns to face Ford. It's my responsibility to save the crew and the ship if possible. It is the only way left. Ford kept quiet and his thoughts raced through his head. Finally, he nodded. yes. You are right, we can't complete the evacuation of the crew and most likely the heavily wounded will be left behind. But Captain, only you alone to pilot the ship. Will that be enough? Ford asks. Of course. I have plenty experience piloting her, Blake grins. All right, back to work. He pats Ford's shoulder and then walks off with his hands clasped behind his back. Here, help carry this. Corporal James bends over the stretcher with a wounded crew on it. With the help of a fellow Marine, they moved the injured into the lifeboat where the medical personnel took over. "'Ah! I'm still wounded, Corp,' Private Mills complained. "'How much more crap do we need to carry?' He rolled a massive canister of over 200 kilograms with the markings of O2 stenciled on it onto the hoist with several others. "'I'm claiming overtime for this. Cut the crap and get those down to engineering.' Star Sergeant Pike roared from behind Mills, making him jump. Hurry up, this crap is going to save your asses soon. I'm so going to put in a letter of protest, this crap, said Mills, out of hearing from Pike and the rest of the crew and the Marines nearby laughed as they continued their tasks. Finally, the crew of the UNS Singapore completed all preparations to enter cryosleep. Blake on the command chair in the bridge and watched the rest of the crew strap into their seats. He activated the ship-wide announcement systems and addressed the crew. All hands, this is your captain speaking. All of you have done very well in the fight against the swarm and in the past few hours. All of you have gone beyond your call of duty, and for that, you have my respect. Now we will be entering a deep sleep to preserve our oxygen and prepare for a two-week journey. I shall see you all on the other side. Godspeed. Blake pressed the injector against his thigh and injected the serum into his body, followed by hundreds of crew members who injected the cryo shot into their arms or thighs simultaneously. Blake felt a cold numbness spreading from his thigh until his whole body was feeling cold. He felt his eyelids getting heavier and heavier before he fell asleep. Throughout the ship, crew members slowly fell asleep and the drug as the computer vented out the heat from the ship. The temperature drops down to around 3 degrees Celsius. The computer AI, following instructions that was given earlier by the command crew, ignited the maneuvering thrusters to maximum, placing the crew at a force of 7 gravities. Following the order that was given by the captain and XO, but unknown to the rest of the crew, the computer uses up all but 10% of the remaining fuel for the thrusters putting the ship onto a collision course with Blake's world. It'll not enter the orbit, but instead enter the atmosphere of the planet and land on its surface. End of chapter Chapter number 11 Blake's World Blake suddenly jolts awake. He gasps for air while struggling against the restraints. As the fog in his mind slowly clears away, he realizes he is on the command seat. As he removes his helmet and takes in deep breaths, he felt the cold, icy air. His breath turns white with a chill. Blake tried to unbuckle himself out of his finds, his fingers numb. He spends several minutes shaking his hands to massage them until he could move his fingers properly. Finally, free of the restraints, he looks around the quiet bridge. Lit by a dim red light, the shadows cast on the bridge crew sleeping on their seats look like they're all dead. Blake sat on the empty co-pilot seat and booted up the display. Once the system started up, he ran the ship's diagnostics. He tries to peer out over the viewport as he waits for the logs to appear, but due to the frosted screens, he couldn't see anything clearly. Finally, the computer beeps and the display of the ship's system log. What is left of the UNS Singapore is currently almost on top of Blake's world. Captain Blake has set computer to wake him up an hour before hitting the low orbit of Blake's world. He checks through all the systems and the ships to ensure that there are no issues or problems from the last two weeks of travel. Next, he powers up the main display on the bridge. A huge screen flickers to life and shows a live image of Blake's world from the probe. Data streams on one side display and a few basic information regarding the planet. Blake got up and stood in front of the display and reads the two weeks of data from the probe. The atmosphere appears to be consistent mainly of nitrogen, oxygen, argon, hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and small amounts of other gases and some unknown elements. Blake skims through the data. Continental-type world, 1.3 times the size of Earth with a gravity of 0.9 times of Earth. No electronic emissions of any kind detected, but appear to have some native life forms. Satellite images show oceans, massive landmasses topped with vegetation. It appears to be a totally Earth-like to Blake. He lets out a breath that he had been holding in. Blake could not imagine if after traveling here, the planet was unable to support human life. His whole crew would be doomed. He looked towards where Ford was lying on his crash seat face hidden by the frosted visor. His gamble had paid off. Using the data provided from the probe and the current approach of the ship, the computer calculated several possible re-entry sites. Finally, he chooses a site with the highest percentage of successfully landing and a less amount of projected casualties. He looks at the data and the images and together with the computer and fine tuned the approaches, taking into account factors like wind and drag. The ship will begin its approach from the thermosphere, looping over the planet to bleed off the speed before descending down into the troposphere, and using the remaining fuel and air brakes to further reduce the speed before hitting the ocean, and using it to dampen the landing and land on a flat beach. Blake wasn't confident that the UNS Singapore would be able to land on the planet, but the issue is, will they still be in one piece? Almost an hour later, the floating hulk entered the orbit of Blake's world. Thrusters angled, and the ship was the correct trajectory, and the ship slowly falls into the atmosphere. Blake strapped himself into the co-pilot's seat and gave a quick prayer to the gods before activating the heat shields. Blast shields slid smoothly down the cover of the viewports, the ice slowly melts away, and the temperature in the bridge starts to rise. As the ship enters the atmosphere, the bow of the ship glows a fiery red, turning the ship into a falling star. All across the planet, native life forms look up to the skies, watching a fiery falling star streak across the sky. As it travels through the sky, it announces its arrival with a thunderous roar, awakening slumbering creatures and scaring the natives. The damaged end of the ship trailed mass of prumes of smoke, fire, and debris from the day. It looks like a meteor, while at night, a falling star. As the natives of this world have never seen anything like this before, many falls to their knees in worship or fear. After the ship looped once around the planet, Blake deploys its aerostabilizer fins and ventral side, giving the ship some form of aerodynamics. He groans from his seat as the shaking rattles his whole body while warning alarms blazed endlessly, driving him mad. Soon, the shaking stopped and the blast shields retracted back. Blake looks out at the viewport, seeing the pristine world and a whole lot of water rushing towards him. He quickly pulls the control up and activates the thrusters to slow the starship falling. As soon as his view changes to show the skyline instead of the ocean, he checks his airspeed. Still too fast, and he applies the air brakes to slow down. Blake wasn't really flying the ship, as the ship would just drop down from the sky. He tries his best to level the ship and not pancake into the ocean. As a city-class ships, UNS Singapore were designed for atmospheric entry. It also was designed to land on water. Even so, he told Ford that he could handle it. He did not really have much skill in piloting the ship. By bind luck, he manages to keep the bow of the ship facing upwards as the aft portion splash-landed against the ocean, creating a massive wake behind. He struggles with the aerostabilizers to keep the bow up as much as he can and burn up all the fuel in the maneuvering thrusters to slow the ship down. Despite his best efforts, the ship skids and cuts through the ocean directly towards land. Blake watches helplessly as the landmass getting closer and closer. Oh, crap. He closes his eyes and braced hard against the seat as the bow of the ship rams the beach before smashing its way through the trees. He finally lost consciousness as the bow of the ship punched through the small hill before stopping. End of chapter. Chapter number 12 Strange New World Corporal James had a good dream with a pretty girl, living the good life while still schooling in university, when the swarm invaded and then turned the dream into a nightmare. The faces of the Sean, David, and the rest keeps appearing and taunting him, no matter where he ran or hide, before catching up to him and turning into the swarm warrior drone, its limbs gripping him tightly and drawing him into its deadly embrace. Screaming, he jolts awake suddenly and flailed around, bathed in a cold sweat, before remembering that he was buckled up in a crash seat. He took several minutes calming his racing heart down before trying to get out of his restraints. Where are the lights? He got out and stepped onto the deck, thinking that he must still be under the effects of the drug, that he was the ship was slanted. He looked at the rows of marines and the crew members strapped into the seats and realized that it was the side effects of the cryo shot. The ship is slanted, his gravity generator broken down. He removes his helmet and a strong smell of ozone and burned plastics instantly assail his nose. He coughs violently and turns his flashlight on his harness on. The light beam lit up the compartment, showering the people strapped in through the crush sheets mounted in two rows against the wall, spending some time. James checks his teammates and the crew members' vitals and found them all alive, but still sleeping, trying to open the hatch of the compartment. he found that there was no power, and to his manually cranked the door open. As he stepped out of the deck, he could see several beams of light as other members of the crew are moving up and down, rescuing people and trying to organize things. James waved at the crew member with a medical patch on his sleeve and called out, Hey, medic! I got about 30 guys in here. Can you check them out? The medic took a quick look into the compartment and took out two markers to start to write something on the bulkhead next to the hatch. Power's out for now, Comes and no network, the medic explained as he scratched some medical lingo on the bulkhead. Got it, I'll be right back with more help. By the way, head to the forward flight deck, everyone is gathering there, the medic said with a rush off down the hallway. As James approached the flight deck, he noticed as it seems brighter and a chorus of voices could be heard and the air felt cleaner, less smoky. Stepping out into the flight deck, he was surprised at the sight he saw. The launch bay doors lay open, displaying a view of the evening sun. Orange, purple skies and clouds stretched as far as he could see. He stood there, watching the view, then he realizes that they had landed on Blake's world. He notices the foliage looks bluish-green, instead of the green but other than everything else it looks suspiciously earth-like even the smell of the sea from the breeze. James walks to the edge of the open bay and peers off to the side. He found that the ship was off to its left and it's wedged directly into a cliff hill. The forward bow appears to be buried into the hill while the trail of destruction could be seen behind the aft section. Wait, how did we land? I thought the plan was to drop supplies from orbit and not the whole ship. He rubbed his short crew cut hair and sat on the edge of the doors, Feeding the sea breeze and watched the sun set into the horizon. "'Whatever, I'm alive!' "'He smiles at the thought. "'Hey, Corp!' "'Private Mills stumbled over and flopped himself down beside James. "'He took several deep breaths and said, "'Join the Marines. See new planets, huh?' "'Behind him stood Private Bartley. "'Pretty!' he intoned before squatting down behind James and Mills. "'You're right, man!' "'James noticed Mills' complexion wasn't very well.' How's the rest? Ribs hurt. I feel like a truck had sat on me. Mills brushed it off. All up. Star Pike says to take it easy for a while, and he and Lieutenant will go and find out what's going on. Well, we're all still left of Section 2. James turns to look at the crew standing or sitting around the bay doors. Except for Ramon, he added. What do we do now, Corp? asked Bartley in a deep voice. What we need now is some beach balls, suntan lotion, and babes. Mills interrupted and gave a wide grin. By the way, this feels like some survival VR game that I was playing a while back. You land on this planet with nothing and then go try to survive by rubbing sticks for fire and hunting animals, chopping trees and growing crops. Shut up, James rolled his eyes. We are not that primitive to take the extent to need to rub sticks for fire. Anyway... Just take a break for now till we get new orders. Thought the higher-ups plans to orbit and drop instead of crash-landing this hulk, Mills asked. James shrugged. I woke up and we were all here. Maybe the computer crashed us. I don't know. Safer to crash-land than do an orbital drop, Bartley said. Both James and Mills turned to stare at Bartley. No crap, Mills said sarcastically. Why didn't I think of that? Stop that, James sighs, knowing our drop-lifted amount, yes. Crash landing is better to get us all down in one piece, rather than in pieces. Well, I guess we'll all make it good thing. I hope no aliens here want to eat us, Will said as he flopped on his back. Hey, big guy, wake me up when chow time, yeah? He said to Bartley. All right, Bartley answered back and sat down on the deck. James wondered at that. Will there be aliens here, too? Will they be hostile like the swab? He took the last look at the scenery as the dying light of the sun turns everything to darkness before laying back against the deck and closing his eyes in thought. End of chapter Chapter 13 Numbers Blake leans against the railing, watching the night sky from the window in the officer's mess. The planet's dull moons loomed over the horizon with a spectacular display of stars as a backdrop. It's pretty romantic, he thought, with the dim lighting of the officer's mess and that wonderful view. Penny for your thoughts. Ford joined Blake at the viewing gallery. How are you feeling? Better, after the meds, Blake replied. I was contemplating how beautiful this planet is. Thank you for saving us all, Ford said. Your plan worked. You landed us in one piece and only a few casualties. It was a gamble, and thank God this lady held. I thought that we were all going to die when that cliff came up. Lady was smiling on you, on all of us, Ford said. So, what's next? Let the crew rest for the night. We start fresh in the morning, make sure that none of the crew leaves the ship, and all hatches are locked down later tonight, Blake said. We have an HOD meeting tomorrow after breakfast. He turned back to the view of the night sky. By 10 p.m. shipboard time, the crew members locked down the ship once more. As they have no idea what was out there, it was safer just to lock down the ship and the crew enjoyed a much-needed rest. As the crew slept into the night, a fair distance away, near the peak of a volcano, a deep roar rumbled out. As morning came, the overall high morale of the crew could be seen. A chorus of greetings and cheerful laughter, could be heard in the and walkways. Blake sat at the head of the conference table and waited for all the heads of department to enter, then started the meeting. Alright, we landed safely, but there are many difficult times ahead. We need to ensure the survival here, as we do not know how long we will be stuck here. There are three possible scenarios. One, we are stuck here forever, so we will need to build a permanent base here. We will build the base here and wait hopefully for rescue. And third and last of all, we rebuild the warp drive and return to Earth. Chief Matt spoke up. Rebuilding the UNS Singapore of what we have is impossible. We don't even have the proper tools for it or the knowledge base. Last option is out, he declares. Ford spoke up. As for rescue, it is also impossible. First of all, we are in uncharted space. And with the war, with the swarm, it will be years before the survey ships into the system. So, the only option is for us to build a base here, a colony of a man, Blake said. In that case, we need to inventory every item and salvage all usable systems of the UNS Singapore. Grayson raises his hand. We need food, medical supplies, shelter and security. Dr. Sharon also raises her hand and added, We need to send out surveying teams to gather samples from the native plant life and soil to see if there is edible, and also if it provides the vitamins that we need. Our vitamin supplies are a little low. And also, I need to use the labs here to test if there is any pathogen or viruses that are harmful to us in the air or soil. Ah, for security, I'll set the marines out to recon the perimeter, and also escorts for surveying teams if needed, Lieutenant Frank said. But we are lacking severely in manpower. I have only so many marines left. All right, you guys know what to do without me telling you, Blake said. I want a detailed report on the current level of status, manpower, fuel, power, food, water, equipment, weapons, and action plans. Blake tecked off his fingers one by one. For now, we set up a perimeter first around the ship. We will convene again same time tomorrow morning. Thank you. By noontime, the ship was a hive of activity. Crewmen using power tools with either flattening the ground to level the surface while others cut down trees or the foliage. Another team worked to clear out the buried portion of the ship out. Pairs of marines could be seen patrolling along the perimeter. In short, a perimeter radius of 100 meters is being cleared around the crash. This activity went on all day until nightfall when everybody retreated back into the ship to button up. All here? Good. Let's start. Blake leans back in his chair as he looks around the conference table. Other than the usual people, a few more new faces have appeared. Okay, who's first? Ops Officer Grayson cleared his throat and he volunteers to start first. The ship doesn't look pretty. What remains of the Ewing Singapore is a forward and center crew quarters, the forward flight and cargo decks, the bridge and CIC, and the forward reactor and the central magazines. He flips his notepad. Also, the medbay, the old civilian's research labs, and the marine quarters are all that survived. How about our weapon systems? XO Ford raised. For weapon systems, the dorsal turret is currently half buried in the side of the hill, while the ventral turret is stacked to pieces from here to the sea. Our missile launchers on point of point slices on the port and starboard are relatively protected in their armored casements, but we have to dig some out of the hill. For ammunition remaining in the magazines, we have a grand total of 80 multi-purpose AIM-32H Space Sparrow missiles, 20 more of the ready launchers, and 236 155mm Sabot penetrators for the railguns. For the PD lasers, until the reactor is fixed, we don't have enough energy to fire them. Grayson took a sip of his water before continuing. We got three machine shops, one in flight, one in cargo, and a final one in the Ford Reactor. All are tools for maintenance and simple parts fabrication. We could tweak around with software and produce other things, but don't expect to build a warp drive out of it. Total active manpower at the moment is standing at 424. While 34 are still in recovery, we have set up five wind, tidal, and solar power generators taken from the five remaining lifeboats. It's currently providing enough power for our basic needs. Also, the ship's water purifiers are still working, just that we need to find a proper water source. Sea water works too, but I really don't recommend it. We will need to build a water supply line or we're going to have to transport water to be purified every day. Grayson looked at his notes. For inventory, he nods to the Asian male sitting to his left. Quartermaster Chen will update us. Good morning, sir. QM Chen greeted Blake. We have twenty two days worth of food, perishables, preserved in running on full rations for five hundred people. We have water enough for sixteen days at the current usage, ninety two power tools, five forklifts, nineteen heavy hand lifters, zero fuel in the tanks, two space haulers, and four buggies. QM Chen looks forward at Lieutenant Frank and continues. On the Marine side, the security section side, we have a total of 37 M7A1s, 2 M7DMRs, 220 Glock G88Cs, 8 M8 shotguns, 4 PK-299HMGs, and 217 PDWs, 30,000 rounds of 6.5mm C-type, 50,000 rounds of 6.5mm AP, 179,000 rounds of 5mm and 10,000 rounds of 12-gauge shotgun shells. He pauses and flips his notes. The Marine's armor says that once the ammo is used up, we do not have enough advanced materials to produce any more ammo, except for the simple ammunition like the 12-gauge. Medical-wise, I'm almost all out of biomaterials to produce much vaccines or medicine, Dr. Sharon spoke next. We used up almost all of it to produce the cryo shots. We need to see if there are any native plants here with medical properties that we can use if we want more medicine. Is there any signs of viruses or pathogens that we need to be worried about? Blake asked. So far, no. I tested the air with the seawater samples, as we have not found any source of water. I cannot verify it yet. Dr. Sharon replied, As for the wounded in the sick bay, good news is that all of them are stabilized and would be able to recover in time. The bad news is that I am nearly out of medical supplies like bandages, sterilizers, and other critical supplies for medical operations. End of chapter Chapter 14 Numbers Part 2 The Marines and Security Section have established a 100-meter perimeter around the base. We are hoping to clear the area up to 200 meters, Frank said. Once Dr. Sharon's team is ready, I'll have my guys accompany them for surveys to provide security. Lieutenant, I'll get the team leader to liaise with you as soon as possible, Dr. Sharon promised. I guess it's my turn now, Chief Matt sighs. While well, the crash landing and ramming the ship into a cliff has knocked the reactors fusing rod alignments out. Stupid computer, Matt grumbled. Blake looked away in embarrassment while Ford kept a straight face. As the crew still did not know the details, Blake decided to keep it that way. It'll take some time to realign the rods. How long? Blake asked. It's a very delicate job, supposing it's done in a yard, and a week at least, Matt said. All right, make it a priority. Also, get the surveying teams out to look for water, Blake ordered. How about the wildlife here? Have we encountered any? Natives? No, sir. Other than the usual bugs and insects, there is surprisingly no form of wildlife seen. Frank said. I won't be surprised considering that we crash-landed like that. We probably scared them all away, Dr. Sharon said. Any chance that the swarm is here with us, Blake asked. It's too early to tell. With the sensors and communications arrays on how the bow of the ship destroyed, we couldn't even contact our probe in orbit. We have no eyes in the sky and all the communications, Ford said. We only have a local communication range of 15 kilometers. If the weather stays like this, the range will drop to less than 10 kilometers if the weather is bad. We can launch some UAVs to help survey the surrounding areas as the first line of warning, Lieutenant Frank said. But they are power intensive, so we might not get much time out of them. Alright, set that up with the UAVs, Blake then asked. How about the transportation? Are the four buggies enough? Um, sir, a bespeckled young man in a mechanic jumpsuit with a rank of petty officer first class pinned to his collar tab spoke. The buggies will not be good for any off-road activities. They are primarily designed to be used in the ship. We need to modify them to be able to be used outdoors. You are, Blake asked. This is P.O. Nelson, Ford replied for him. He took over Master Chief Cobb's duties in addition to his own in the motor pool. Space haulers are too heavy to lift off from the atmosphere. It'll require a lot of modifications before it can be flown. Also, fuel for the haulers is limited. P.O. Nelson continued. As everyone digested the news, Blake stood up. All right, I think it's good that we more or less know the problems that we face. For now, our priority is food, water, and power, then medical. Weapons and modifications of vehicles is not an issue yet. As for rationing of food and water, we decide again after one week. As he was about to end the meeting, someone at the back raised a hand. Sir, I am Spaceman Apprentice Alice from Hydroponics. The young Caucasian lady with her hair tied in a ponytail introduced herself. Hydroponics was lost in the explosion, but I have some seeds with me in my locker. Mostly potato, lettuce, tomatoes and strawberries. That is good news. Blake was relieved as it could help with the food issues. Okay, SA Alice, I am putting you in charge of farming. Get a list of what you need to exile Ford. Any other questions? With that note, the conference ended and everyone returned to work. Blake gestured to Ford to stay back. Once the room was clear, Blake said, What do you think of the odds of starting a colony here? If we can settle food, water and power, I think we should be okay. Unless the swarm is here in force or there are hostile natives, then we need to rethink our strategy. Ford answered. We need to ration the usage of our equipment and look into ways to replicate or substitute them. We do not have the infrastructure to produce everything that we need to support our current tech. Sooner or later, it'll break down and we won't have the parts or the ability to build or replace them. Blake rubbed his eyebrows. Do we have anyone with the relevant knowledge or the know-how in this case? Ford asked. I know Staff Pike is great with the jungle survival stuff, but he probably knows plenty of jungle and forest skills that'll be useful to the crew out there. Okay, I think we should make all the crew members fill up a questionnaire regarding their skill sets, Blake suggested. This way we can filter out those with skills that can help in building up a base. I will look into expanding the perimeter. I'll get right to that, sir. Ford then left the room. Blake finished off his coffee before following Ford out of the room and went off to supervise the crew working at the perimeter. He exited the ship by the cargo bay ramp, with extending all the way to the ground. He stood at the foot of the ramp and cranes his head up and looks at the cliff where the one third of the ship was buried into. Damn, how did we survive that? Thank God for small mercies. Captain a men in a red jacket strolled up to the saluted Blake. Sir, I heard from the XO, you are coming to check out the perimeter. At ease, Blake returned the salute. So, what do we have here? The soil is pretty standy, but we are about 300-350 meters away from the sea. All around us is overgrowth and not many larger trees, so work has been progressing quite fast. The vegetation around the ship was first cleared away, creating a flat, square-shaped field. The ground was then flattened to compact it uniformly. We extended to about 120 meters away, and by tomorrow we should be able to clear the land up to 200 meters away. They walked towards the edge of the field. The crewmen pointed out the various interesting features of the terrain and also an elaborate on where the wall the buildings were built using the local materials. A wall enclosing the colony is also planned to be constructed. How do you plan to build this? Blake asked PO First Class Letts after looking at his name tag and rank. Do we even have the construction materials to build all that? Cap, I used to own my own construction company before getting drafted, Letts said. Cement and concrete are easy to make. All we need is limestone, sand and some clay. I've gotten the boys to go poke around to see if they can find any clay for me but limestone and sand got plenty around us. He gestures towards the cliff. But can we produce enough of it to use? Blake was impressed. Yep, I set up a production line to produce as much cement and concrete as you want, as long as I have the raw materials, Lets declared. How much manpower and resources do you need? Forty or fifty, to one now, then it depends on the output and demand. Also, I need a week so to experiment with the perfect mix. Let's said. Good work, P.O. Keep it up. Inform the exo or me if you need help. Blake said as he thanks lets for his tour. End of chapter. Chapter 15 Giant Wolf Hey, big guy, see anything? Private Mills asked Bartley as they followed the three technicians into the forest. What the hell are they collecting? Samples, Private Bartley replied his eyes constantly scanning left and right in the clearing where they'd stopped. Damn, I know it's samples. For what use? Private Mills grumbled. He snaps away an insect that landed on his neck. Both of the marines were wearing number four forest camo fatigues, open-faced helmets with an armored chest plates and equipment armors. Except for Bartley, he lugs around a PK-299 heavy machine gun that is attached to an exoskeleton frame that he wears with several large pouches containing ammunition for his weapon. To study. You know what? You're all fun and games. Really. Moles gave up trying to chat with Bartley and walked up to the one of the tanks crunching over a plant. Hey, what you doing? The technician turns and lifts up a small container with a leaf inside. Well, we are cataloging the plants to see if they can be eaten or used in some way. He gives the bottle a little shake before placing it carefully into his bag. Yeah, okay. Mole straightens up, unimpressed. So this blue-green plant's sideable. edible. He plucks a leaf from the small tree. Most of the leaves of the plant life in Blake's world are bluish in color with a hint of green. Well, not this, he stood up. Over there. He waves Mole's over and kneels down to the tiny growth in the blue foam like leaves. These here is a kind of tuber or root. In case you jugheads don't know what a tuber is, the rest of the text laugh as he continues his explanation. The guys at the lab says it tastes like a carrot and potato and carries the same nutrients and vitamins as them, so they called Carato. Oh, wow! Mills rolls his eyes while Bartley looks on in interest. So, other than the tuber root Carato, nothing more interesting found. Ha <laughs> we found plenty in the last week, the tech proudly said. There are tree sap that tastes like maple syrup, but when dried, becomes like rubber. Also, there are berries that on the other team brought in. The rest of the techs chipped in the stories. That huge monster fish from the sea, mushrooms from the... Moles listened with half an ear to the excited techs talking about new discoveries on the planet. He waves away the insects buzzing around his face and leans against a tree. He looks around the clearing and pulls out a pack of protein bar and starts chewing on it. Mills, Bartley says in his usual tone. Mills, something's watching us. What? Mills jolts up. Where? I'm not sure. Bartley slowly turns to spot where the face towards the forest. His eyes peer intently trying to find the source of his unease. Are you sure? Mills fingered the weapon's safety. He's casually walked towards the textile in lively discussion. ''Guys, I think we need to start packing up. It's getting late.'' They are roughly one hour on foot away from the base. ''But we're not done here yet. It's still early.'' One of the techs protests. ''We've only collected less than half the samples needed.'' ''We can do it tomorrow. For now, pack it up. We're heading back.'' Mills growled at the techs. Sensing something was wrong, the techs quickly grabbed their belongings and equipment. ''Less than a minute, they are all ready to return.'' Quickly now, let's go. Mills led the way with Bartley covering the rear. The group quick marches through the forest, climbing over massive tree roots and in certain area, dense foliage. Mills, Bartley comes. It's following us. I can hear it. Rap. Mills cursed. Base, this is dog too. We might have a situation here. He comes back to base. What's the situation? Base radios back. We appear to have something following us unable to identify. RTB immediately. A rapid response team will meet up with you along the way for escort. Over. Roger that. Moles ended the comms. Let's go. He pushed the group to travel faster. They pushed through the dense foliage and emerge out in the field of grass. The wind causes the grass to sway like waves. This is not good, Moles said as he scans the surroundings. The closest tree line is about 200 meters away. It's too open. Big guy, hold the rear. We go by frog leap, he tells the group. I go first. Once I reach the tree line, I'll give a signal and then you guys are next. Just run, okay? Don't stop till you hit the trees. Mills looks left and right before dashing across the field in less than 40 seconds before he arrives at the edge of the forest. He quickly got into a ready position to cover the rest of the waves that detects start running. The tech seeing his signal, they run towards him. Once they reach the cover of the trees, Bartley followed suit with a sprint across. Suddenly a huge roar erupts from behind Bartley, causing them to pause and turn. A wolf the size of a bus leaps out from the foliage and lands several meters behind him. Everyone stood and stared in amazement before yelling for Bartley to run. The giant wolf-like creature has two horns like a buffalo and a grey-blue colored coat, making it seemingly blend in with the surroundings. It made a leap towards Bartley who followed the encouragement of the group and was running towards the trees. Mills fixed his safety off of the M7A1 and took sight of the creature. The two X red darts sighted and mounted on the weapon seemed to enlarge the creature furthermore. Once he noticed Bartley out a line of fire, he triggers his weapon, firing a long burst into it. This time, instead of a C-type rounds, he was loaded with AP rounds. The AP bullets slammed directly into the center of the creature, causing it to tumble. Sparking, a bluish blood burst out from the impacts. The creature yelped like a very dog-like manner as it rose up. It shook its body, causing specks of blue blood to scatter. But the frack, Mills roared, that's cheating. The body armor's piercing rounds. It freaking shrugged it off. Angry, Mills continued firing at the creature. By this time, Bartley had made it over to the tree line. He took a deep breath and braced himself to hoist up his PK-299 and fires a stream of bullets at 1400 rounds per minute. The traces of the HMG was like a laser striking the creature and tearing it to meaty chunks. End of chapter Chapter 16 Giant Wolves As the echo of Bartley's HMG died down, the techs together with Mills cheered. Ah, damn, I need one of those myself. Mills swaps out a new mag with his partially empty mag from his rifle. Hey, techies, is that giant wolf or what? He asked the techie, crouching next to him. Eh, I have no idea. We need to bring the corpse back to study, but it does look like a wolf with horns, the techie replied excitedly. As he peers intently at the tired wolf. Huge, too. No crap, Sherlock. Merles rolled his eyes. Damn nerds. Merles, it's not over yet. Martley's calm voice cuts into the conversation. More incoming. In the distance, sounds of something heavy crashing through the foliage can be heard. Snarls and growls seeming to grow nearer and louder. A sudden howl heralded the arrival of four more giant wolves. Each as huge as a car or a minibus. Oh, crap. Mole saw the group of wolves appear in the opposite side of the field. Run! He yells at the text, Big guy, covering fire. He opens up with his rifle. Bartley opens fire with his weapon and backs off slowly. He directs the spray of traces down to the nearest of the largest wolves in the group. Sparks smoke shreds of meat and fur flew as the traces came into contact. Searing his target, dropping, he sweeps his fire to the closest wolf. clumps of dirt and torn grass flow in the bullets wrought destruction in its path. The wolf roars in agony and raises its front paws to protect its venerable face as the bullets slam into its body. The other wolves quickly leap into action and split off towards the left and right, respectively to escape the storm of bullets from Bartley. The heavy fire from Bartley manages to suppress and take down two more of the wolves, but the other two move too fast for him to get a good look at them. For Mills, it was harder to hit the wolves. Freck, how can dog crap like that move so fast? Meme cursed. He tries to get good aim at its closest wolf, but it kept dodging his shots. Damn it, you dog! Stay still! Bartley ceased fire, turning and running towards Mills. Upon reaching his side, he turns around and covers Mills' flank with fires and rapidly approaching Wolf. He fires a short shot of burst and waits for the wolf to make a dodge by leaping to the side and then he opens fire where he estimates the wolf will land. The laser beam-like traces turn the area where the wolf landed into smoke and blood, causing a small fire in the grass field. Finally, Mills also manages to bring down his target, just 10 meters away from him. The wolf crumples down, dying of internal injuries. Even if it's dying breath, the giant wolf snarls in rage. It struggles to raise up, and the limbs claw desperately in attempts to move its body. Slowly, the hate in its eyes faded as Mills and Bartley watched it slowly stop moving. Any more? Mills asked. He reloads and crouches down, keeping his rifle in a ready position. I don't see anything, Bartley replies. He lowers his weapon and checks his ammunition counter. Phew, thought that last one was going to get me. He walks up and pokes the wolf carcass with a smoking barrel. These guys are tough. I'm using AP rounds. He bends over and examines the wolf body before using his hand to pull something from the fur. Holy crap. He holds up a complete bullet, with the tungsten alloy coy tip slightly flattened. This crap is supposed to be to penetrate up to 14mm thick steel plates. Bartley picks up a bullet from Mills and examines it. Then he walks one full circle around the body gauges. Roughly 5m long, 2.5m tall. He taps the horns with a growing out of the head of the wolf. Solid ivory. Damn, we bagged a big one, eh? Huh? Mills grinned. Think they'll allow us to mount its head up in the barracks. He poses with one foot on top of the giant wolf like a big game hunter. We can make big bucks with this. Soon after, the rapid response team of 8 arrives with a group of techies. There are two Marines and six from the security detail. Their gear and uniform greatly different from the Marines. They are armored with black riot gear and dark naval grey jumpsuits, carrying PDWs or shotguns. They hurriedly bash through the undergrowth and appear out of the tree line and see Mills leaning on top of a large rock, while Bartley seems to be trying to put out a fire in the distance. Took you guys long enough, Mills grins, and no thanks to you guys, but the day is saved. Yeah, yeah, Lance Corporal Cooper from Section 1 rolls his eyeballs at Mills. So what crap did you get into this time, Mills? Found ourselves some natives, Mills pats the rock, he's leaning on a freaking giant wolf. He gives a little bow and he presents the giant wolf to Cooper and his team. Cooper looks over at the giant wolf with horns and whistles. Nam, that is a huge son of a witch. He gives the wolf a kick. Bloody solid too. We got another four of this bad boy here. Mills jerked his head towards the field. And this one is just one of the smaller ones. Bartley could be seen stomping around amongst the bluey-gray rock-like objects amidst the smoking grass. Four more... Private Quang was the rest of the security section, looks on wild eye. There are more of these things around. The security sections finger the weapons and look around, their surroundings nervously. I don't know, seriously. Mills shrugged. He watches as the techies excitedly start to collect samples, measure the bodies and snap photos. All I know is that they are pretty bulletproofed. The group reports back to the base asking for more support and help to transport the bodies back for analysis. Soon after, over an hour, another twenty people arrived with heavy lifters and strapped the bodies onto the lifters and they started the trek, carrying the giant wolves back to the base. By the time they approached the base, everyone has heard about the incident and turned out to see the giant wolves. Merles happily basked in the glory of all the tension as he bragged about how he and Bartley heroically saved the survey team and how he killed all the giant wolves. And... Chapter. chapter 17 Manor Stone. Captain Blake and Commander Ford strode outside a reinforced window looking for the desiccated remains of a giant wolf. It was placed on a steel pallet in a hastily made environmental clean room in the corner of the cargo bay as it was too large to be moved into the labs. Huge glass containers containing parts of the wolf lined the sides of the enclosed area on a table. The rest of the wolf was stored in the refrigerator room in sealed bags. "'So, Doc, what do you think of these wolves?' Blake asked through the intercom at the window. "'Very fascinating indeed, these creatures.' Dr. Sharon wearing a yellow biomechanical protection suit. She held a PhD in criminal forensics and medicine. "'I might not know much about animals, but these creatures are amazing.' Dr. Sharon gestured her assistant to display the data findings on a display mounted next to the window. These are all males, very similar to our Terran wolves in fact, but with several times the muscle, bone and tissue strength and having horns. She lifts up a curved horn measuring over a meter long. I suspect that they use it as a way to gore other animals like the Terran bulls do. Also, their blood contains large traces of copper, therefore their blood is blue. It also was why the fur is bluish. I think this is a natural way of camouflaging in the wild. Blue, like crabs. Ford glanced at Blake, who shrugs. The next, she displayed a strand of blue hair. This is taken from the body. Its tensile strength is almost as tough as nanocarbon. That's why your Marines' weapons were not that effective. With the dense coat of fur, it acts as a natural armor to absorb most kinetic energy and disperse it away. She shook a tray full of deformed bullets to emphasize her point. Other than the fur, the hide is quite tough, but it's easier to cut with a knife or to be shot through. So you're saying that the fur is stopping bullets and not the hide of the creature? Ford asks. Yes, even with the fur we managed to easily cut through with our operating knives, Sharon said, but the fur does not fully negate the kinetic energy away since most of them died of internal trauma. Hmm... This means that the marines' bayonets and knives were more efficient than guns due to the fur coat of the wolves, Blake thought, or hit with a big enough gun. But the most amazing thing we found is this. She holds up a blue stone. Under the white laboratory lights, it looks like a piece of blue quartz. We dug it out from under its throat. It appears to form naturally from the creatures like some sort of tumor. All the wolves we have has this under their throats in various shapes and sizes. She gestured to the lab assistant to turn off the lights. As the lights went off, the stone held her hand, gave off a faint glow. This is its molecular structure under the scope. Rotating the image of molecules in a web-like structure appeared on the screen next to Blake and Ford. The computer is unable to match it to any known element. The closest match is a 68.33% similarity to radium, she continues. We also ran some tests on it and found something interesting. The lab suddenly lights up from a light bulb at the table. Doctor Sharon had just placed a stone on the device with two wires—a red and a blue—with connections to the light bulb that was lit up. Oh, is it some kind of battery? Ward, wide-eyed, asked. Blake was speechless. This is unbelievable. We believe that it is used by the wolves like one, allowing them to tap into the energy reserves, giving them extra energy to burn. Dr. Sherrod said. Also, when it is used this way, we detect some form of radioactivity. It will appear the more power being drawn from the stone, the higher the radioactivity is. Wait, a miniature nuclear battery? Ford and Blake were shocked by Dr. Sherrod's words. We need to run some more tests. By the way, the meat of the wolf has been tested to be edible by humans with similar nutrient values to pork. We can use it to supplement our dietary needs. Dr. Sharon turns back to the lights. And for the stone, we decided to call it a manor stone. That is amazing, Blake said to Ford as they walked out of the makeshift lab. A giant wolf with horns that grow radioactive batteries. If we are not at war or lost, this planet will grant us many technological breakthroughs. He stops at the top of the ramp and looks at the cargo bay and the lively scene outside the ship. Over the week, the land had been cleared to almost a kilometer away. Straight roads made from crushed gravel lined the cleared lands. Tiny crew members could be seen working the planted crops. Clusters of circular pop-up survival hats from the lifeboats are arranged neatly in a circle, with the UNS's flag waving gently in the sea breeze. Several wooden towers nested at the edge of the fields provided lookouts and security for the bubbling colony as the first workings of concrete wall could be seen. If we can harness the power of mana energy won't be an issue anymore, Blake said as he took in the scenery. Sir, I think we should be careful about here, he cautioned. We will need to increase the number of security forces to the surveyed teams. Yes. There is too many unknowns in this world and many things that we have yet to understand, Blake said. Increase the number of guards and make sure they report every 30 minutes from now onwards. It also appears that the byproduct of the wolf is quite useful for us. Do you think that we should set up some teams to hunt for them? Ford asked. Our food supply is starting to run a little low. Even if we're growing crops and harvesting wild vegetables, we need more sources of food. How's the fishing operation going, Blake asks, thinking to the group of people with fishing skills. Barely enough to feed the base. Too much time spent on a low yield returns. Plus, we need a boat to do large-scale fishing if we want to support the base with enough food, Ford says, and his skills, knowledge, and equipment to build the boat were left unsaid between them. No, I don't want to send men out to hunt something the size of a bus, Blake decides after a while. Also, if possible, run some drills for the base. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Ford cleared his throat. Would you like to try some of the wolf steak tonight? He grins. <laughs> sure. Why not? I'm sick of eating caratos every day. Blake jokes back. End of chapter. Chapter 18 Needs. Hey, did you try the wolf steak? I tried it and it was awesome. Conversation like these were going around all over the base colony. The wolves provided the men and women of the UNS Singapore with a rare meal, allowing them to enjoy the fresh meat other than just eating starch or foraged roots. Everyone was excited about the discovery of the wolves and topics of conversations were all about them. Yet, in the commander's meeting, the atmosphere was heavy. So, we had first contact with a native life-form here, and it appears to be hostile. Chief Matt said, he leans back and he folds his arms. We have to assume the rest of the planet is hostile too. It might be our men were trespassing in the territory. Moves are known to be very territorial creatures, Grayson argued. We can't assume that they are the same with the animals from Earth, Chief Matt shot back. All right, that's enough. Blake slaps the table with his palms. We raise our alert levels, ensure all survey team members are qualified with a firearm and is armed at all times, and also double the security detail with them. Yes, sir, Grayson said, his face slightly red. Here is our current progress of the base. He activates the display and brings up the UAV view of the area. Over two hectares of land is cleared and ready to be used for housing and offices. Our current production of concrete and cement is still under the process of being streamlined. Once that is completed, we will be able to produce enough concrete and cement for all of our infrastructural needs. Another hectare is being cleared and it is currently in the midst of being used by the hydroponics to grow food. He zooms out the image of the display as a whole. Current construction of the wall is at 20% completion. It will cover the entire planned residential and production areas. Our current food stalls consist mainly of foraging from the northern forest. Fish will be discontinued as it takes up too much manpower and returns currently are too low to support us. Hydroponics assures us that the first crop of potatoes and tomatoes will be harvested in three weeks' time, and also they are currently cultivating the local karato If successful, it will be harvested within a period of one month. The display showed several graphs and charts indicating different foodstuffs. Our current food supplies is currently enough to last us for a month. I would like this number to be higher if possible, but we have yet to find more sources of food yet. And as for water, recon flights with the UAV have spotted a river up north, roughly 8 kilometers away. Grayson continues, We will need to dismantle the piping from the ship and dig 8 kilometer trench to the pipe water over here. Plans are here, waiting for your approval. He hands a tablet over to Blake. The water converters are currently producing enough water from the seawater for our current needs, but the wear and tear will increase due to the salt content. Blake nods. Okay, what's next? Dr. Sharon's assistant, P.O. Alvin, who heads the survey team, stood up and took the meeting. Currently, we have six teams doing surveying missions on these locations. The display once again shows top-down map of their current location. The sea is at our west, while the cliffs are extended from our south several kilometers till it hits the sea. To our north is a huge forest, and to the east is a large uh, grassland stretching for over 20 kilometers, before stopping at a mountain range with several active volcanoes. This is where the wolves were encountered, and also we discovered a rabbit-like creature similar to the wolves. It has a horn. The display shows several video recordings from the UAVs. Is it hostile? Blake asked. No, but it ran away from the surveying team. We are hoping to catch some to, to study, Alvin said. Wait, why didn't the UAVs detect any of the wolves or any creatures to be exact? Q.M. Chen asked. We believe that we've been crashed here we caused a huge stir in the local ecosystem. All local wildlife fled away and is currently starting to return back, Dr. Sharon explains. Or another reason is our sensors are not calibrated correctly to detect the local wildlife here. Doesn't the wolves show up on our infrared sensors? Chief Matt asks. Or even the heartbeat sensors should work. Dr. Sharon shrugged. We need a live sample to test if the marines can catch one alive. No, Blake rejected immediately. I don't want to lose men. If they come, we deal with them accordingly, but we do not go and find trouble. Lieutenant Frank nods, glad that he does not have to send his men out on some crazy mission. Dr. Sharon shrugs again. Well, the test results of the Mena stones have come back. It is certainly in some kind of natural biological energy storage, but it appears that the color, size, and purity of the stone varies. The more clear and larger the stone, the more energy it stores. Dr. Sharon paused for a sip of water before continuing. We are unable to identify what it is made of. It appears to grow out from the thorax of the wolf. I would really like a live sample to play with, she thinks. The amount of energy stored is roughly 5,000 watts for the smaller stone and 9,000 watts for the largest stone that we have. She places the dull fist-sized grey stone on the table in front of her. After we depleted its power... The color fades and it becomes like this, like a normal rock. Is it dangerous? Ford asks. Like highly flammable or explosive? The last time you said that it emits radiation when it is used. It is in a very inert state. It doesn't appear to be highly flammable nor explosive, and it is similar to tensile strength to wrought steel. Dr. Sharon places another man stone on the table. The color of the stone is a dark blue hue. The power that you draw from the stone, the higher the amount of radiation given off, similar to how atomic elements create energy. The molecules inside split apart to produce energy, Dr. Sherry explains, but unlike nuclear fission, the area of radiation is limited to less than a meter, nor does it produce heat. The people in the conference room were stunned. A mini-nuclear battery which produces no radioactive waste and heat... Think of all the tech that could be powered by that. Amazing, Chief Matt exclaims. Can I have one to experiment with? Sure. Dr. Sheron pushes the blue stone to Chief Matt, who picks her up and examines the stone against the lights. Matt kept the stone in his pocket after examining it and says, The repairs to the reactor are proceeding as planned. It should be operational within four days. How much fuel do we have for the reactor? Ford asks. Enough to power what remains of the ship's systems for seven months, Bat replied. After that, it's all dry. End of chapter Chapter twenty Ruins A massive wolf with a streak of silver fur on its back, and ivory tusks spanning over two meters, walks out of the tree line sniffing the air. It stood upright over four meters tall and shook itself displaying its impressive silver-blue mane. Walking over to the spot of trampled and torn grass, it lowers its snout and sniffs the ground, before looking up the trail leading towards the other side of the field. The next few days are at the base. The higher-ups run several unexpected drills, some in the day, others in the middle of the night or just before dawn. A typical day at Blake's World lost 27 earthen hours, and the crew kept the days, weeks, months, and times similar to Earth. The drools differ from attack to the base to biological outbreaks. They are starting to shape up properly, staff sergeant Pike says, as he stood before a tactical screen on the bridge watching the hive of activity at the base with the ship's cameras. He glances at his wristwatch timer. Nine minutes, eleven seconds. Better than before, sirs. Before, they took over 19 minutes to get into action. Staff, Sergeant Pike, says, and Blake and Ford watching the action next to him. Good work, staff, Blake watches in approval. Make sure the men know what to do in the event of an attack. He watches the crew at the base drawing weapons and getting their assigned positions. Simulated explosions pop up here and there within the base compound. All right, end the exercise and let the men stand down. He looks at the clock displaying the local time of 4.46 a.m. Thank you, sir. Staff Sergeant Pike did his best parade ground salute and turned before exiting the bridge. As the day started, work had divided in construction, foraging, security, production, and surveying. Construction teams worked on buildings in the infrastructure of the base, like the perimeter wall or digging the newly approved 8-kilometer-long trench to lay the water pipe to deliver fresh water to the base. Other teams foraging for food like keratos, patrol the perimeter, creating cement, farming, and exploring the surroundings. Communications officer Clara sniffs a yawn as she sat on her console monitoring all communications in the base where the different teams work in different fields. So far, all communications traffic mostly involves mundane reports. She looks at the time another two hours before her shift change. She sighs and leans back at her chair, wishing that she could pass by faster. Her console suddenly flares in an incoming transmission. Base, over. She taps the connection icon. Dog four to base over. We, um, found something here. Clara leans over her console and waves to the XO, getting his attention. Dog four, please report your current location and status. Clara continues. She pulls up the operation chart of the day, finding out who Dog Four was and his team. Sir, so, it's Corporal James's team. They are supposed to be surveying the north sector in grid H four, Clara said as Exo Ford stood beside her. Base, Dog Four, we um we are at grid H four dash B dash three. Over. Dog four, Base, what is the situation? Over. Base, Dog 4, we found some ruins and some kind, over. Requesting orders, over. Dog 4, this is base, standby, over. Clara looks up at Exo Ford, waiting for his reply. Tell them to hold, we will dispatch more support his way. Ford said after deciding a moment. Dog 4, base, hold your position, back up and support us on your way, over. Roger base, Dog 4, over and out. Get the captain, Ford said to Clara. Corporal James entered the corps with base and looks at the moss-covered ruins. The four-story tower looked like a structure made of stone, with the local flying creatures flying in and out of the crumbled roof. Several other collapsed structures surround the tower, but the nature has reclaimed most of it. Only a few remaining walls remain standing. The techies were looking over the entire site, trying to determine how large the structure was while the rest of the team were on alert, watching their surroundings for any danger. He removes his gloves and touches the surface of the structure, reading the rough stone surface. Who built these, he wondered, and if they are still around. Suddenly yelling and sounds of gunfire erupted from the ruins, James turns and rushes towards the direction of the gunfire, speaking into the comms as he ran. What's going on? Who's firing? He saw two of the techies scrambling out of the lichen-covered building with a collapsed roof. Next to the tower, one of them was firing his pistol wildly behind him. James quickly ran towards them, shouting, ''What's going on?'' The techie yells something incoherent while continuing to fire into the depths of the ruins. James, losing his patience, jerks the techie's weapon away from him and snaps him. ''Calm down!'' The wide-eyed techie blinks several times before saying, Monsters! Little green monsters! They got Christine! James quickly orders the security team to stay alert, and waves to one of the security guys in the back of his riot gear over. Cole, right? James confirms his name. You know how to do an entry. Cole nods. He checks his shotgun is loaded and follows James into the entrance of the ruins. James directs the call to enter first with his shotgun, while he slings his M7A1 and draws out his Glock 88. With his left hand on Carl's shoulder, he squeezes it and indicates the call to advance. Both of them enter the step into the building and their weapons at the ready. Even with a part of the roof collapsing inwards and the shadows cast by the overgrowth, the partially standing walls blocked most of the sunlight. The strong smell of rot and wet mud greeted both of them as they shone at their flashlights left and right. Several empty bullet casings scattered all over the moss covered stone floor glistened from their flashlights. Signs of struggle could be seen from the clumps of dirt and moss torn from the stone slabs. Corporal, Cole calls out. He directs his light to a small opening at the back of the building where a pile of stones sat. Looks like a way in. James crouches down and shines a light in. He couldn't see all the way in, but the ground clearly shows signs of something heavy being dragged and other prints trembling over it. Damn. James reports his situation to base and quickly makes a decision. Let's go in after them. He tells the rest to wait for backup at the entrance of the tunnel while he and Cole will advance into the tunnel to save the tacky. Let's go, James tells call, and the two of them bend down low and enter the tunnel. End of chapter. Chapter 20. Dungeoneering The tunnel appears to be a part of the ruins, as the walls and ceiling feature the same stone designs as outside. Dangling roots of some kind of fungus line the sides of the walls, only the entrance appears to be dug out by someone or something After several meters, the tunnel slopes downwards and into the side of a stone corridor. James follows the tracks and stops as they entered into a corridor. He looks carefully on the stone floor and says, This way, pointing to the right. Bits of soil and moss on the stone floor showed the direction where the attackers went. Wait! James suddenly stops Cole. He pulls out a chemstick, lighting it up, and he jams it into the opening in the wall, pointing the direction that they are heading to. For the reinforcements to know where we went. He adds for Cole's benefit. Cole nods and starts fast walking with his weapon at the ready. They have tested the communication devices earlier and couldn't get any signals out. As they went deeper and noticed that there were several side rooms with doors, rotting and caved in. Inside, they found them in some kind of storeroom, with several unidentified objects with large rat-like creatures scurrying away from the bright beams of their lights. Some of their rooms were even filled with bones or rotting parts of all kinds. They quickly retreated out of the room as the stench of the rotten the decay was super bad in there. The stone walkway finally splits into two ways and Corporal James bends down low to examine the floor. Crap, I'm not sure where they went, he cursed. The stone floor was too hard and dry to leave tracks behind. So, what do we do now? Carl asks as he licks his lips dry nervously. Splitting up seems bad. Wait. Turn off the lights, James said with the lights turned off. The darkness surrounds them. After a while, James excitedly said, There, found them. Confused, Carl looks around in the dark before understanding what James meant. As their eyes adjusted to the dark, the right side of the tunnel appears to be brighter than the other. It was highly likely that whoever grabbed Christine, they had to be using some kind of light to travel. Turning on their flashlights again, James marked the wall with an arrow to indicate which direction they went, and they set off at a faster pace. After another 10 to 15 minutes of walking and passing by in empty rooms, they saw what appeared to be some kind of lights ahead. Both of them turned their lights off and clearly could see the flickering glow of the end of the corridor. As they came closer, they peeked out of the corridor to see a stone hallway expanding out of the huge hall. From their vantage point, several crude torches hang from the sides of the pillars that reached up to hold the ceiling where it would look like chandeliers hung limply. Sounds of voices and growls reached their ears as they saw several children like creatures mingling around the huge black pot set in the middle of the hall. Pieces of furniture littered the walls, and several sleeping cots could be seen. What are they? Cole whispers. Natives Yeah, I think we found the natives. You see Christine? James asks. No, I don't see her. Cole peers around. Wait, She's in the pot, horrified Cole bursts out loud. Instantly the hall turns quiet and all the denizens inside turn and look at the two of them. Oh crap, sorry, Cole apologizes. Ah, freck. The childlike creatures shriek and scramble to grab what appears to be knives or swords as the blades reflected in the light from the flaming torches. Fire, James screams as the creatures close in. From close up, the size of the creatures appear to be similar to a ten-year-old child, but the long ears and wrinkly face, bulbous nose, red, bleary eyes, banged mouths and bald heads seem to be from a fantasy nightmare. They shriek and yelp like hyenas, pushing and shoving their naked bodies at each other in the mad quest to get to James and Cole. The bark of the M7A1 and the boom of the shotgun drowned out their eager screams and cries of pain. James now understands why the techie says green monsters, as his 1000 lumen tactical flashlight and his M7 light up the creatures in front of him. The bright glare of the light half blinds the creatures, making them flinch away. This skin is colored in a greenish-gray hue. Most of them are naked, displaying their deformed genitals, while others wore simple loincloths, rags, or even animal hides. The forward wave of green creatures screams in terror and the pain of the bullets rips into them. They turned and shoved against the mass of green that is trying to get the two humans. They couldn't understand what powerful sorcery they have that throws thunder and fire at them. They tried to run away but were blocked by a crowd of pushing forward. Getting countless steps on, they crushed to death. Reloading! Cole screams at a cacophony of gunfire and shrieks his hearing deafened by the firing in an enclosed area. James steps up to cover him as he sprays with his M7 without even bothering to aim. The AP rounds tear through several bodies like paper in a tightly packed space. The flood of green skin soon starts to falter as the panic from the other front spreads to the rear. Suddenly, the floodgates breaking, the host of greenskins disperses and disappears into several other exits in the hall, leaving behind a carpet of dead and dying. The smile of voided stomachs, blood, and cordite linger in the hall. Holding back his urge to gag and vomit, Cole steps over the bodies of the greenskins. What the hell are those things? He turns to see Corporal James dodging a dying greenskins dagger, who then shot it in the head with his pistol. I have no idea, James said as he holsters his pistol. How is she? Cole reaches over the huge black pocket and looks in. and um, she's naked and soaked in a bunch of other things. Cole gave the grimace. I'm going to tip the pot over. He braces his back against the almost two meter tall cauldron and shoves it off the crude stone support. Luckily, they didn't light the fire yet. He notices the firewood stacked underneath the pot. James joins Cole and tips the pod over and helps drag Christine out. Apparently, the green skins have cut the clothes off from her body, and several long cuts can be seen on her body. She appears to be knocked out, judging from the bleeding bruise on her forehead. Other than that, she's still breathing. Better find something to cover her up, James said before realizing there is nothing around and Cole's uniform is a jumpsuit. He sighs and starts removing his armor and harness before removing his marine BDU to cover her up. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.